You've heard actual plays. You've heard audio dramas. But have you heard a hybrid of both? You're about to. Audio is recorded during a live tabletop role-playing game with all the decisions, dice rolls, and consequences played out in character. That live audio is then refined and concentrated into a razor-sharp hyper-chronicle. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Why do we have to start with me? Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I open the door to the bar, surveying its patrons. I open the door to the bar, surveying its patrons. Confusing game mechanics. At two levels of exhaustion, you have disadvantage on ability checks, and your speed has been halved. Are edited out. Distracting table banter. <laughs> is edited out. Tedious rule checks. Make a nature check. Uh, Make a stealth check. Edited. Make a perception check. Out. The remaining audio is further enhanced by a full cast, cinematic music, and immersive sound effects, allowing the adventure to unfold in real time, as if it were really happening. The bridge between imagination and reality lies before you. Another world, with its own rules and mechanics, beckons. You are about to begin a journey into Sonic Realms. An old man in a light blue robe places a piece of off-white parchment on a desk in front of him. A solitary candle lights the room, casting long shadows onto dimly illuminated walls. He dips a feathered quill into a small bottle of ink and begins to write in flawless calligraphy. Greetings, adventurer. My name is Jesha, village elder of Azalea, and I humbly request your assistance. Recently, our lands have been despoiled. We cannot determine if this is an attack or a natural phenomenon or perhaps something supernatural. Our town is in danger. People are getting sick, and some are dying. Nothing we can do is helping. I have taken it upon myself to reach out to several adventurers of some renown in the hopes that an unorthodox solution may be found. You will be rewarded for your efforts, only you must come quickly. I fear we have little time remaining. Please come to Azalea by the solstice to meet the others, and I will explain everything. We await your arrival. He places the quill in the ink reservoir and holds up the parchment to the candlelight. He nods once in approval and sets it across from the other letters, identical in size and shape. He stretches his back, picks up another blank parchment, and begins to write again. Greetings, adventurer. My name is Jaisha, village elder of Azalea, and I humbly request your assistance. Sonic Realm presents The Fruit of Life, a 
Dungeons and Dragons Audio Saga. Late night in the small but wealthy village of Hessian, within the dukedom of Grimholm, a Shadar Kai known as Sendra emerges from the darkness and walks toward a tavern. Lanterns and torches line the mostly empty roads, contrasting Sendra's gray appearance. Sometimes confused for dark elves, Shadar Kai are a subspecies of Shadow Elf from the Shadow Fell, a realm between life and death that somewhat mirrors the mortal world in a twisted and decaying fashion. Within the Shadow Fell, positive emotions are dulled and negative feelings are amplified. It can be difficult for Shadar Kai to acclimate to the mortal realm with its varying colors and spectrum of emotions. One of Sandra's preferred methods of dealing with these differences can be found at her destination for the night, an inn known as the Obnoxious Swan. I open the door to the bar, surveying its patrons, taking it all in. Surveying across the bar, uh, I look towards the tables over in the corner and see a few patrons playing Three Dragon Ante, which I happen to be a great player at. I swing by the bar, pick up a drink, and saunter over to the tables. Excuse me, fellas. Mind if I deal in? A wood elf with partially braided long hair and a red-faced halfling look up from their game. They see a slender, ashen-gray-skinned female wearing a dark gray and black cloak with the hood up, mostly obscuring her dark eyes. Her lower jaw is visible, and it has a purple, pyramid-shaped tattoo on her chin, extending down to her neck. Through the front slit of her cloak, the wood elf notices the familiar gleam of armor. As he deals a new hand, he silently kicks out a chair from the table for her to sit. Thanks. Ah, great. Another elf. That's fine. I'll take your gold, too. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will. The halfling seems more interested in peering over his cards at Sendra rather than at the cards themselves. After a couple of hands, he continues to glance at her until she raises her eyebrows and looks at him out of the corner of her eyes. He takes another deep drink of ale. Judging from the glassy look in his eyes, it's obvious he's been drinking for a while. Hey, you look really familiar. Why is that? Maybe I just have one of those faces. No, no, I've definitely seen you before. Hmm. Hmm. You know, not long ago, the town over, there was a church that burned down. Plenty of people inside. Why do I feel like I saw you there that night? I may have been there. What town did you say it was? Over in Bearers Hollow. Yeah, yeah. You look very familiar. Yeah, Bears Hollow. I heard that there was a church burned down with the priest inside. But accounts vary on how many were there with them. I think I saw you skulking around in the shadows nearby. You didn't have anything to do with that, did you? And what if I did? The wood elf apparently sees something in his halfling friend's eyes that makes him speak. This is no time for a fight. We're trying to have a good time. Sendra continues to look at the halfling with a slight smile creeping to her dark lips, as if daring him to make a move. The halfling stares at Sendra for a moment longer before slamming his cards on the table and leaping to strike her in the face. 
I dodge out of the way of the incoming punch. The halfling flies over the table and connects with the wood elf's eye. The table flips, spraying the next table over with cards, coins, and ale. The halfling scrambles to get up and tries to punch Sendra again. I trip the halfling as he comes punching forward. As he hits the ground, fumbling to get up, I remove a few coins from his pocket. In a fit of anger, the wood elf picks up the halfling and tosses him onto the table behind them. I move stealthily back to the bar and toss coins to get a new bottle of ale. The bartender, seemingly disinterested in the fight raging behind Sendra, ducks beneath the bar to find her an unopened bottle of barley wine. Sendra feels a tap on her shoulder. Turning around, she sees a voluptuous, curvy, bronze-skinned woman with short red hair smiling at her. Though Sendra's emotions have always been muted, this woman's beauty stirs something within her. Hi there. Good evening, gorgeous. Is that a new bottle of ale? It certainly is. Care to share it with me? I would love that. Taking the hand of the gorgeous woman in front of me, I grab my new bottle of ale and move down to the end of the bar. We sit for a while, drinking the wine, talking about life. I can't look away from her. Her short red hair, violet eyes, amazing. A piece of hair falls over her left eye. I reach out and tuck it behind her ear. Wanna come up to my room? I thought you'd never ask. Tell me, do you handle yourself as well in the bedroom as you do in a fight? I see the small patron come flying at the bar without taking my eyes off of the gorgeous woman in front of me. I move the bottle of wine out of the way. You'll certainly find out and we make our way up the stairs. Blue shafts of early morning light stream through an open window, illuminating a face like a fine living sculpture. The bard known as Sybil Silvertongue turns onto her side, the sheets steeply draping from her wide hips into the valley of her waist, like a small hill made of fabric. I wake up in a bed next to the woman I've met last night. I saw her steal money from the halfling, and she offered me a drink, and we had a night to remember. I roll over and look at her. I don't want to wake her up yet, so I walk towards the window instead, enjoying the morning light, and I see her stir. Good morning. Oh, good morning. Sandra squints at the morning light. Beneath her squeezed, gray eyelids are two black orbs with no sclera. She struggles against the painful sunlight to watch the last glimpses of Sybil's body as she begins to dress herself. First are some simple, body-hugging undergarments, then studded leather armor, which covers strategic body parts nicely while leaving enough room for movement. Finally, she puts on her favorite garment, a cloak of many fashions. It's a vibrantly colorful, wondrous cloak that she can easily change to look like any cloak in existence, altering its quality, style, and color as needed. Currently, it's a bright golden yellow, meant to attract as much attention as possible. She catches Sendra squinting at her and smiles. Did you perhaps have too much to drink last night? More than likely. Don't stir. Don't trouble yourself. Can I get you anything? Would you like water or anything else? Uh, draw the curtains. 
Oh, darling, it's a beautiful day. And I think checkout's soon. If you want, I can go down and grab us some water. You don't have to come with me, but I'm afraid I might never see you again if I leave you. I have somewhere to be. But last night was fun. It was wonderful. I hope our paths cross again. I run my hand down her leg. You're so beautiful. So are you. Where's my clothes? <laughs> Somewhere around here. I stand up and gather her clothing from different areas around the room. And I lay them gently next to her. I'm sorry, dear, but I... I'm afraid I do have to head downstairs. It's very early and, and uh, I have somewhere to be before it gets too late. But I'd like to leave you with a kiss, if you're okay with it. Of course. I kiss her gently and touch her face before departing the room. There's work to be done. I hope I see you soon. Goodbye, gorgeous. Goodbye. I walk down the stairs to the tavern stealing myself. I'm here for a mission. I'm determined to make a name for myself here, and I can't resist a potential payoff. The risk is worth it. I walk out the door of the tavern. I have to find transportation to get to Azalea. Maybe find a stagecoach somewhere. Varys winces as the previous night's events begin to trickle up into his conscious mind. They first arise as impressions, then bits and pieces of memory begin to take shape. He opens his eyes and finds himself in a small jail cell. Oh, these benches. They're no good for sleep. Oh, give me a pile of moss and the forest floor. I look around the cell. The empty cell triggers more unpleasant memories. He is alone. The only furniture in the cell is the bench on which he slept. Wood elves typically prefer being outdoors, with at most a tent surrounding them. The claustrophobic stone cell starts to feel oppressively smaller with each moment. Well, at least I didn't have to fight anyone for my bench. I, uh, stand up off my makeshift bed, start pacing the cell. I know that I have to get to Azalea today. I don't want to be late. I uh, start stretching, feeling all the aches and pains from the fight before. Pop my neck. Ugh, everything's still where it belongs. I uh, grab the bars of my prison. At the end of a narrow hallway of cell doors, he sees the jailer on duty, sitting and reading a book. You, jailer! The jailer looks up from his book. I guess it is about time for you. Hang on. The jailer puts his book down on a table, stands up, and walks over to Varys's cell. Are y'all sober now? Can you prove that I was ever drunk? I reckon I can after last night. Caused quite the scene in there. It's gonna be five gold fine for causing such a ruckus and property damage. But you pay that, or work it off, and you can get out of here. I look the jailer up and down. Surely he's not like a ill-meaning person, just doing his job. I'll be glad to pay my fine. But, uh, unfortunately, my gold is with my things, which I seem to be left without. Oh, yeah. That's no problem. Hang on. I got you. He walks away to a separate room. After a few moments, he returns with a pack and a long wooden staff. I take it this is your stuff? It looks like mine. Uh, whereabouts would I be finding your gold pouch in this here pack? It's a mighty personal question. 
Look, I'm not letting you out of there until you either agree to work it off or you pay your fine. So? Well, if you set the bag by the bars and look away, I'll have your five gold in my hand. Hmm. I'll set your bag by the bars, but I ain't looking away. He places the pack down in front of the bars. I look at the jailer, kneel down towards the bag, reach into the main pouch, shuffle things unnecessarily to disguise where I'm reaching. I produce the five gold fine and an extra gold for the barkeep's trouble. Hmm. That's mighty decent of you. All right, that seems to be in order. Hang on. He pockets the six gold, pulls up his keys, and unlocks the cell. All right, you're free to go. Maybe next time you come around here, you'll think twice about drinking so much, eh? Oh, maybe next time I come around here, I'll think twice about who I let play Three Dragon Ante. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy your day. And you enjoy yours. I leave with my belongings. Ferris walks outside, relieved to once again be outdoors. The denizens of the small town of Hessian are milling around, walking in and out of shops and casually greeting each other as they walk by. Hessian is about a day's travel from Azalea, his destination. Well, I never, I never was one for horses. A day's travel, I'll probably cut that down if I run most of it. <sighs> I uh, tighten my pack, make sure all of my belongings are secure, and jog out of town. Making his way outside of the town's perimeter, Varys turns to run off the path and into the forest, preferring the rough, untamed terrain. He dodges between trees and leaps over logs as he makes a straight line toward Azalea. The sun in the sky is teasing a sunset over the picturesque town of Azalea. The lighting seems to bring a clarity to the already gorgeous town, saturating the colors of the wildflowers that circle the town and the multicolored tile roofs within. Azalea has an alarming natural beauty, seemingly built in harmony with the surrounding environment. It's the perfect temperature outside, with the scent of freshly baked bread mingling with the sweet smell of wildflowers under Sybil Silvertongue's elegant nose. As I approach Azalea to meet Elder Jasha to start this mission I've been requested for, I notice the beautiful wildflowers that surround the town. It's been a long time since I've seen something so beautiful. I reach down and gather a few to put them in my cloak. One can never have too many beautiful things. I look ahead to see if someone can point me in the right direction, and I notice a blacksmith, so I approach him. Good evening, sir. For a moment, the blacksmith doesn't respond, not realizing that he's the one being addressed. He's pounding a glowing orange horseshoe into shape, with the heat from a nearby forge matting his beard in sweat. He stops, leans back, wipes his brow, and sees that the stunning woman was speaking to him. Oh, uh, hi. Is there something I can help you with? Of course. Uh, I'm looking for the village elder. Jaisha? Yeah, uh, sure. The blacksmith stands, grabs a pair of tongs, and dunks the horseshoe into a nearby pail of water. Steam billows up into the clear sky as he removes his gloves and wipes his forehead again, trying to quickly improve his appearance. He walks out into the street and points. Uh, just take the road straight into the center of town. You'll find a house with blue tiles, red chimney. That's the one you're looking for. He lives there. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so, what brings you into town? I've been requested. Just, just down there. The, the, the red chimney, you said? Yeah, with the blue roof tiles. Wonderful. Uh, you need anything made? Uh, not currently, but I will certainly let you know. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I got quite a bit I'm working on, but yeah, I can easily squeeze something in for you, if you like. That's very kind of you. Perhaps we'll see one another. Farewell, sir. Yeah, uh, have a wonderful day. Walking down the main road, Sybil eventually sees a house matching the blacksmith's description in the distance. A group of children come running down the same road, chasing a ball. I approach the elder's house and notice the children playing in the street. It's such a glorious day, I decide music would be appropriate. I take out my violin of illusions and begin playing something lively. And as I do so, tiny sparkles surround the children and dance around for their enjoyment. The children immediately lose track of the ball as they see the brilliant light shimmering around them. Some laugh and point, others jump and try to catch the sparks, never quite managing to grasp them before they fly out of reach. Fancy seeing you here. I hear a voice come from in front of me. It's not one of the children, but I recognize it. I stop playing. Fancy seeing you here too. This town looks like something I've seen in storybooks. It's very cute. The children, no longer having sparks to play with, have turned their attention to the mysterious newcomer with purple triangular face tattoos and hair darker than a moonless night. With all the eyes on me, I pull my hood over my hair to obscure my face, tired of all the stares. Can I ask what, uh... I don't want to be weird, but did you follow me? Actually, I came to see the elder. But it's uh, nice seeing a pretty face. Y you're here to see the Elder, too. I reach in my purse and pull out the letter I received and show it to the Shadow Elf. I received this, and uh, I'm here to see what the payoff is going to be. I reach back and pull out the same letter out of my small belt pouch, unfold it, and hand it over. I'm just here for the fun. Beautiful. Are we going to be working together? Looks that way. Someone with a large backpack suddenly runs out from a nearby alley and adroitly pivots directions. After effortlessly jumping over a couple of children, he stops in front of Elder Jasha's house. You there! We have a score to settle. Oh, I just need a moment. I don't know you, sir. You may not remember me, but I've had a long run to think about your face. I'm flattered, but I still don't know you. I catch my breath, loosen the straps to my pack that has been tightened down to me for this entire day, throw it to the ground. There was an inn back in the town, about a day's run back. Somebody looked just like you, came in, I welcomed them to our table for three dragon ante, and then, Miraculously, a fight broke out because of you. Sybil senses a confrontation brewing. She steps forward, drawing Varys' attention. 
She closes her eyes for a moment before speaking. When she opens them again, she intensely focuses on Varys' face. You might be mistaken. This woman was with me all night. Perhaps your head is hurt. After Sybil finishes speaking, Varys' aches and pains from the night before nearly vanish. His swollen black eye and bruises seem to recede and fade away. He chooses not to acknowledge it out loud, though a brief, perplexed look on his face gives away the fact that he knows she cast some kind of healing spell upon him. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't the one I'm looking for. But I feel much better, and I have much more important business to attend to here in town. Are you here to see the Elder as well? My eyes narrow as I focus on the red-headed human. Yes, as a matter of fact, I have a letter right here. I reach into my belt pouch and produce the letter. How, uh, how would you have known that? Well, good monk, it appears we are all here for the same reason. I reach in my pouch and pull out the letter again to show him. It appears we might be working together. Hmm. The door to the house opens up, and a slightly bent, older man wearing a robe walks out, steadying himself on a gnarled-looking wooden cane. He has long white hair and a medium-length salt-and-pepper beard. Above the beard are eyes with weathered wrinkles around them, though they seem to betray a youthful vigor. Oh, I didn't expect... Good, good. I wasn't expecting you all so early. Very prompt. Very prompt. You are, in fact, the adventurers I was looking for, yes? The ones I sent those letters to. Yes. I did receive a letter, yes. And I did as well. Well, most of you, at least, are punctual. We are waiting on one more. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but I took the liberty of hiring someone to be the de facto leader of this expedition. I don't discount all of your experience. I've heard quite a lot about each of you individually. But this one... Uh, this one is a war hero, a leader of men. A man in immaculately shining armor passes the border of the town and confidently walks onto the cobblestone streets. A billowing cape flutters gently behind him, which matches the cleanliness of the armor. His faceplate is down, which is slightly unusual, but nobody seems to care, likely thinking that he is a knight on his way between official business of some sort. He stops in what appears to be the center of town, near a beautiful fountain, and looks around slowly, taking in the lay of the land. He sees a villager petting her dog outside of a nearby hut and approaches her. I'm looking for Jasha here. I've been summoned. The confused townswoman looks behind her to confirm that the man is indeed speaking to her. Oh, uh, the elder. Uh, there's no trouble, is there? Yes. That's why I'm here, to address your troubles. Oh. Oh, I see. I didn't know he had hired another group. He's down the center of town. Look for the blue shingled house with the red chimney. Thank you. That horrible little cur. You ensure that that blood stays on your... Your property doesn't follow. The blue house, you said? Oh, lovely. Where's this elder? Yes, a war hero. He has served in scores of battles across the land and has earned a reputation for keeping his troops alive and finishing contracts. 
He should be arriving soon. In fact, there. That must be him. Yes, here he comes now. Elder Jasha, what is this person's name? Jasha turns and outstretches his shaky hand toward the armor-clad figure approaching them, speaking loud enough to both answer Sybil's question and introduce the swaggering wall of gleaming steel to the party. This is the legendary Pivax. Good day, Elder and ladies, sir. I am Pivax at your service. Yes, ah. Perhaps I should go on with introductions. I can only assume you are Sybil. Silvertongue, at your service. Hmm. That would make you most likely Varys. I am. Which makes you Syndra. At your service. Oh, is that your name? You'll know each other. We've met, yes. Oh, that's good. Camaraderie built in already. That's wonderful. So... Let us discuss what it is I brought you here for. Come, follow me. There's something I must show you in the south end of town. Everyone follows Jasha. Sybil walks next to Pebax, watching him out of the corner of her eye. She finally turns to him with an inquisitive look on her face. Pebax, that name sounds familiar. The very same that took care of the rampaging ogre in Varkin? Yes, my dear. The very same. Lovely. Well, it is a pleasure to make your acquaintance. And might I say, the tales I've heard don't do you justice, good sir. Thank you, my dear. My exploits and battles are known across the land. But once in a while, I'd like to find out more about my countrymen and help them out. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. I trail to the back to assess the other members of my party. Faris. He's fast, but is he faster than my blade? Pebax. This one, I think, is compensating for something. And Sybil. Hmm. Sybil. Azalea has been blessed with incredibly rich soil and clean spring water, which makes for excellent yields every harvest. Even our livestock seem to get the benefits of the bounty of the land. Everything grown here is more nutritious than anything else found in the district. We have been quite blessed for a long time. As they walk to the south edge of town, past the perimeter of colorful wildflowers, they come to the edge of a forest. Canopy rises high above them as they enter, with moss, stones, tree trunks, and healthy roots encompassing their vision. Looking further in, an unnatural-looking dark patch becomes visible. The woods don't seem dead there. Rather, they look sickly. Plants are brown and slouching. Leaves are yellowing even though it's the middle of summer. A long, black swath cuts through the wildflowers, some dying, some dead, while others just seem to be wrong. A putrid smell gets stronger as they approach the black patch. As you can see, we have been somehow blighted. Jasha points to the patch. Some time back, a small child went in there looking for truffles in the woods. When she returned, she was very sick, and the truffles she had gathered were, well, blighted is the only word I have for it. Elder, forgive me, but what does a fungus have to do with us? I'm getting there, my dear. You see, the sickness is reaching through this ring of flowers. 
It's been encroaching on our land for quite some time now, and it won't be long until it reaches our town. If our town is corrupted by this strange sickness, it will hurt us badly. We are, for lack of a better term, the breadbasket of this district. If our town falls prey to this sickness, then hunger will spread throughout the dukedom. Nothing we have tried has succeeded. Jasia points to a charred section of the Blight. We tried burning it so it wouldn't spread, but it all leads back to the woods. Every time we try something, it spreads in a different direction. I have no doubt by summer's end, it shall reach our fields. If it corrupts our fields, our livestock may become sickened. Some townsfolk have become sick, and a few have even died. It's a wasting sickness that we cannot explain, and cannot stop. Jasia pauses and looks down as he collects himself, a look of grief on his face. It's obvious that the blight has taken a heavy toll upon him. He shakes his head and looks back up to address the group. I have, many people in town have called it, a crackpot theory. It requires a group of skilled individuals, the likes of which our town does not produce. He looks to the east and raises his cane toward a massive white-capped mountain range in the distance, which seems to rise into the clouds. That is the World Wall. On the other side lies the Everwood, a realm of the Fae. It has been anchored to our plane of existence for quite some time, and I have no doubt that that is where our blessings have come from, due to our close proximity. In what I assume is the center of the Everwood grows the Chikora tree. It acts as an anchor point to keep that portion of the Fey Wild anchored to our world. Now, I've heard stories. I'm sure some of you have as well. Have any of you ever heard of the Chikora fruit? The Chikora fruit? It's quite a, quite a delicacy, I've heard. A delicacy? <laughs> Whoever told you that was ill-informed at best or huckster at worst? No, no. The Chikora fruit is a nigh-on mythical fruit, one that supposedly exists only within the Fey Realm. It is my belief that if we were to take one and bury it in the town center, its tremendous life-giving properties would be able to stave off this sickness and return the vibrancy of the land back to normal. Jasia takes a few steps forward beyond the group and gazes at the imposing world wall in the distance. I have hired two groups of adventurers to go and take care of this. The first was three, four months ago. They have not yet returned. I do not hold up much faith for their survival. I don't say this to scare you, but to prepare you. The journey over the World Wall is dangerous, and the Feywild can be unpredictable. But if you find this fruit and bring it back, I believe you will save our village from certain destruction. Elder Jasha. Has anyone simply followed the path of corruption into the forest to see where it begins? Yes, we sent out one small search group of hunters. They also have not returned. Are you sure you just didn't need to send a gardener to pick a flower instead? I am not following. I reach down to the wildflowers at our feet, pluck one, and tuck it into the cloak pin on Vivek's shoulder. Hmm, lovely, it'll... It'll stay there. It'll look shinier against my metallic armor. <laughs> yes, well, some other villagers have gone a short distance into the woods and have returned, but every one of them has returned quite ill. I do not believe that we will be able to find the source of this plague. So I ask you again, 
Will you help us save our town from destruction? Help us save this district from starvation? Elder, forgive me, but there was mention in the letter of uh, some pay. I've been able to collect 500 gold as a reward. Now, I know it might not seem like a lot to adventurers of your esteem, but with the success of this mission, I will send with you a letter, penned by myself, to bring to the Duke. He is very wealthy, and I have no doubt would be willing to hire your group, or each of you individually, for much higher paying jobs. So while the immediate reward is admittedly not high, the future prospects are limitless. Well, I believe I'm only speaking for myself here, but um, of course we'd want to help the people of, of, of your town, considering how much it has given us, the people of this realm, the nourishment and the, and the, the beauty of everything you produce here. Jaisha decides he will look past the suspicion that she has really only agreed for the future prestige. He smiles and nods. Thank you, my dear. And the rest of you? I, for one, am happy to help cure this plight on the land. Excellent. Sindra. I also agree. Jaisha looks to Pebax. I'm sure I need not ask such an esteemed hero as yourself to assist in such a time of need. Huh? Pebax? My nose smelled the blight as soon as I set foot in this place. Here's what I'll do. Pebex turns and addresses the group. I'll make sure none of you die on this little jaunt of ours. In so doing, we all stay alive a little bit longer, together. Yes, Pebex, please protect me. <laughs> you keep us alive, and I'll keep us fed. My spells are legendary. My best interest is to keep us all alive and together. We beat this thing as a team, or not at all. Well, all right. It sounds like we're a team. I like the sound of that. That is why I hired you all. Jaisha points to the snow-capped world wall. I warn you that scaling the world wall is treacherous. The air is cold and thin. If you need anything from the town, I suggest you do so before you head out. It is a four-day journey to get to the mountains, and the ascent to the peak may be more than a full day's climb. Town vendors have food, provisions, camping equipment, anything you may need for the excursion. When there's mention of food, I decide to take care of the group's needs and cast Create Food and Water to provide for the group. Sybil narrows her eyes and extends her hand to the ground. Light begins to warp and bend, shifting from formless clouds of energy into warm, solid shapes. The light coalesces, and in its place, the spread of flatbread, white cheese, and a simple pitcher of water remains. She drops her hand and smiles. I apologize for the taste. It's rather bland, but it will nourish us. But it will spoil after 24 hours if we don't eat it, so. And the water is clean. It won't go bad. Oh, you can just do that. That's impressive. Well, thank you very much, Elder. He bends over to pick up a piece of flatbread. Do you mind? Please. Jaisha bites into it. His expression doesn't change. Hmm, that's rather... Rather bland. Rather bland, yes. Jaisha swallows the dry, mealy bread. <clears throat> 
I'm sure it will be filling. I pick up a hunk of the cheese and give it a smell. Oh yes, yes. This will go very nicely with my mushroom stew. And that will keep us warm as well as fed. Yes, I'm afraid it's not aged, but it will do. Well, if you do want uh, more appealing foodstuffs, the markets are still open. Not that I don't think this is wonderful, mind you, Miss Sybil, but perhaps better saved for an emergency situation. Thank you, Elder Jasha. You're a very kind man. I think to myself, uh, creating food and water is great, but I need a little something extra. Maybe I'll look in town to see if they have any dried meats available. Sandra begins to walk towards the town market, with the others following. The market is full of colorful tents and stalls, with an abundance of delicious-looking, vibrant food spilling from baskets and countertops. Good evening, sir. Good evening to you. I have some wonderful dried goat, if you'd like. It's freshly dried just yesterday. How much are you looking to purchase, young lady? Uh, I think I'll purchase about three days' worth, if you have it. Three days? Well, three days worth of jerky. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Do you have anything on the spicier end? Oh, yes. We have spicy. Yes, ma'am. Give me one second. You wait right there. I'll get you the spiciest jerky we have. The jerky vendor excitedly begins cutting a reddish sheet of jerky into strips. He then wraps up three days' worth of spicy jerky into waxed parchment and places it onto the counter. There you go. This'll run you. Well... I won't lie, it's going to run on the expensive side, seeing as how this is an entire three full days worth of jerky. Um, one and a half gold, perhaps. I give him two gold. Miss, we get a lot of strangers around here, and normally I'd say I don't hold to them very well, but you are welcome at my stall any day of the week. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure doing business. I'm closing up shop early today. On the other side of the market, Varus considers his options for the long journey ahead. Creating food and water, that's a nice trick. But you can't get the taste right if you can't cook it with your own hands. We need ingredients. Mushrooms, turnips, carrots, celery, a good base. Mm. Off to shopping. Varys walks into a group of vegetable stands. Sweeping his eyes over the collection, he sees a rainbow of colors, from brown root vegetables to strikingly colorful fruits. A vendor sees him looking and approaches him, smiling. Good evening, kind sir. We have some very fine vegetables here. This town is known for a bountiful harvest. She reaches to the stall and grabs a massive carrot, bigger than any carrot he's ever seen in his life. He imagines the thickest section cut into coins, or in this case, small plates. Very nutritious, very large. You only need to buy a couple here to get the same volume you would need to get anywhere else. Hmm. Yes, that is quite a beautiful carrot. However, I'll be traveling, and that might take a little too much room in my pack. Do you have any smaller ones? Or perhaps I only need the one. I could cut it up for you to make it more portable. Hmm. Leave them whole. They'll stay fresher longer. I point towards the carrots. I'll take a couple of those. She begins to prepare the carrots he pointed out. 
I reach for uh, some of the mushrooms, get a good sniff of them. Mmm, these were picked recently, weren't they? Yes, and we were sure to take them from the area that is located farthest from the part of the woods that have been <clears throat> affected. Mm, yes, I'll definitely need a few of those. And uh, some of these turnips as well, please. Wonderful. Ferris goes on to point out a collection of vegetables, roots, and mushrooms. Once finished, the vendor puts them all into a pack which she sets on the counter. That will come to, say, five silver? Hmm. A fair price. I uh, hand over the five silver. Thank you very much for your assistance. It's my pleasure, sir. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the market. Pebax has made his rounds through the entire market, ignoring stares from the humble townspeople. Did I see that they had goat leather here? I haven't had good goat jerky in months. Pebax walks up to the jerky vendor, who looks like he's in the process of closing up shop. He looks up, grins, and returns to the counter, unable to resist another sale. Oh, another fine shopper to my fine stall. Excellent. I want all the goat jerky you have. Uh, all of it? Yes, all of it. Find the biggest satchel you own and fill it with all the goat leather, please. Wait, uh, leather, sir? Or jerky? Well, where I come from, we also call it leather, you know. It's just a, part, a turn of phrase that never mind. All the, oh yes, the jerky, please, yes. Right away, sir. It'll just take me a few minutes to slice all that up for you, but yes, uh, give me just, just one moment here. As the vendor begins to slice the thin sheets of meat into strips, Sybil strides through the market, also drawing stairs. She has survived on nothing but her magically produced rations for extended periods in the past, and would rather save her gold for more interesting things. She wonders if she should try to find extra strings for her violin before she goes, knowing she likely won't be able to find replacements in the Feywild. She passes behind Pebax just as the vendor places a sizable satchel on the counter. Well... This looks to be about, uh, ten days' worth of rations. Wow! For this much turkey, I hope you wouldn't be opposed to, um, say, five gold? More than reasonable for the finest goat jerky around, no doubt. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome, my lord. It was quite the pleasure supplying someone as esteemed as yourself. Have a, have a wonderful day. The vendor maniacally looks behind Pebax and waves to someone. Hey, hey, J Jathan, help me close up the shop. We are heading home. <laughs> Excuse me, good sir. Uh, do you happen to have, uh, uh, do you happen to have any diamonds for sale? <laughs> diamonds? Yes. What, do I look like a prospector? No, sir. We sell jerky here. Well, you used to until I bought all of it, but... Do you happen to know where I can get some diamonds? Uh, out here, no, I couldn't think of a place. Maybe somewhere up north and a uh, fancier city? Certainly not out here in Azalea. Excellent. Uh, uh, all right. I just wanted to know. You never uh, sell things. You never know. You never know. Well, have a good day and thank you for all the wonderful jerky. Oh, my pleasure, my lord. My pleasure. Good luck on the diamond hunt there. 
Once all the shopping is done, Varys, Sindra, and Sybil meet near Jaisha's house. Pivax is the last to arrive, with a large, unwieldy sack slung over his shoulder. Um, is that an, in- an entire sack of goat jerky? Yes, it is. Would you like some? Uh, no, I, I would not like any now. I'm not hungry, but I would offer, if, if you need help carrying that, uh, to put it in this bag. Sybil reaches behind her back and produces an unusual-looking bag. Oh, excellent. You have a... Peebex points and stops speaking, fascinated by the bag of holding Sybil has produced. It is a wondrous item, adorned with runes, colorful designs, and other unusual markings that seem to nest perfectly within themselves. Even the folds of the bag seem symmetrical and orderly, no matter how they bend. The finely weaved fabric faintly shimmers when it catches the light, as if magic is somehow seeping to the surface from within. Peebax snaps back to the matter at hand. Oh, you... yes, here, here. Do you have more space? Of course, and rest assured it will be easily accessible whenever you'd like goat jerky. Sybil, thank you. Here you go. Peebax and Sybil take a moment to transfer the contents of the jerky sack into Sybil's bag of holding, a handful of strips at a time. Maybe I should go buy a tent. Sandra takes a small step towards Sybil. Unless you want to share a tent. Acceptable. Well, you could get a tent big enough for the four of us. That would certainly help when we get into the mountains and it's cold. I look over at Sybil. I shake my head. This is unacceptable, I'm afraid. I look back at Varus. The lady has spoken. While the others are gathering their things, I walk to the edge of the blighted area. I take out a small box for my bag and take a few clippings of the blighted plants. I put it into a few of the tubes, add some more powders, and look at it to try to examine what the actual nature of this blight is. I'm unsure of the nature of the actual blight itself, but I believe it to be magical in nature instead of natural. Sendra returns to the small circle of items within the group. Jaisha opens his door and walks outside, seeing that everyone has secured the last of their belongings. He rests his palms on the porch railing as they look up to him. You all look like you're ready. Have you any more questions before you go? No? Very well. I've told you what I know of the Feywild, but I'm unsure of how useful it will be. The Fey Realm works differently than what we're used to. I hope you can succeed where others have failed, for you truly are our last hope. Upon delivery of the Chikora fruit to our village, I shall happily pay you your gold and pen a letter for each of you to give to the Duke. A look of worry darkens Jaisha's face. Stay on guard, for things often aren't what they seem in the Fey. The differences between our realm and the realm of the Fey can be disorienting. I'm sure if you all trust and rely upon each other, you shall be successful. Jaisha closes his eyes and extends his arm. May Lord Pelor bless you on your travels. May luck find you, and good fortune stay with you. Farewell, adventurers. 
with everything in order. Okay. Party nods and waves a farewell to Jaysha. They immediately begin on their long journey, starting with a four-day hike through the woodlands toward the towering world wall. Each night they camp, Varus generously volunteers to cook supper. The wildlife leaves them alone for the most part, staying hidden behind the trees and only daring to investigate for crumbs after everyone has departed. On the evening of their third day, they find a clearing and begin to set up camp. As I'm looking ahead on our path, I notice mountains in the distance. They look to be quite treacherous. Do you see those mountains? Am I wrong that perhaps the path on the right around that curve might be the easiest? Does anyone see anything different? I'll scout ahead a little bit. Ah, keep an eye out for mushrooms. I know how much everyone loves my stew. Night has fallen, with familiar constellations glittering above, intermittently embellished with rising sparks from the campfire. They have been supplementing their meals with Sybil's magically produced foods to allow their better-tasting cuisine to last longer. Everyone has finished setting up and cooking as Sendra returns from the darkness. Well, pardon me, I, I must, uh, uh, dine over here in the shadows. It's far simpler for me to digest. <laughs> I take my leave. Good night, all. Pebax collects his meal and excuses himself from the group, walking into the darkness far enough away that the gleam of his armor can no longer be seen. Sendra, however, has what is known as dark vision, allowing her to see in near pitch darkness. In the distance, she can still make out Pebax's form sitting on a felled log, presumably dining on his meal. Does anyone else find it odd that we've never seen Pebax's face? As Sybil raises the question, I look past the fire and into the darkness where Pebax is sitting. I kind of lean in and say, I can only kind of tell that he has darkish hair. But it's long. He doesn't look freakish. I can't see his face. Peculiar. Well, I've seen a lot of faces, some of them less comely to look upon. Perhaps he's... Embarrassed? Yeah, maybe super ugly. For several days, you'd think it'd be quite uncomfortable. Do you want me to sneak over there and take it off of him? No, no, that would be disrespectful. Hey, Pebax! Would you like some jerky? I get up slowly from my seat and start walking into the shadows. I pull up my hood. As soon as the hood rests on the top of Sandra's head, she seems to blend further in with the darkness, making it harder to distinguish between her and the shadows. As I creep around quietly to the front of where Pibox is sitting, my eyes widen at the sight of him. I don't think I've ever encountered a creature that looks like him. And I make my way back to the campfire and sit down. I don't know what I was looking at. Really? Well, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear. It's a secret. Let him keep it. You're no fun. I get up from the fire and walk off in the opposite direction of Pebex to go collect some more firewood. Do you think that's why he's keeping the secret? Because he's 
strange looking. Maybe. I've seen plenty of strange creatures. Do you think I should ask him? Couldn't hurt. I'll wait for him to return. After finishing off my 12th goat jerky, I make my way back to the campfire and, and sit with the rest of the others. <clears throat> Peabacks? Sybil, yes. We're companions now, yes? We've been traveling together for a few days, and we've been talking and getting to know one another. Yes? Yes. And you... Are, are you feeling more comfortable with us? Do you... Do you have any reason that you wouldn't trust us? Why? I'd like to see if I could persuade you to take off that helmet and be comfortable sitting with us as yourself. Oh. Well... Only at the proper time, my dear. I've, uh, as you might imagine, given the helmet, I'm quite private. So. Yes, but we've been, again, we've been traveling for several days, and I just can't imagine what you'd like to hide from us. If you've seen the battlefields and the wars that I've seen, dear, you may not want to look upon my face. I sing about them. Just in case, not yet. Let's return to the Elder with his necessities. And then, perhaps, you can get a look at my face. I come out of the woods and drop the firewood that I've collected <clears throat> near the campfire. I want to save Peabacks from any further questioning. Speaking of all those tales that you sing about, Sybil, why don't you serenade us and, you know, entertain us with a song? Of course, I'm always happy to. I pull out my violin and begin playing again. I know Varys just wanted to save Peabacks from any further questioning, but I'm always happy to perform. As I begin playing, snowflakes begin falling and expand outwards towards the group. Sybil continues to perform near the fire as the ambient temperature drops simultaneously, matching the illusory snowflakes gently falling around the campfire. A cold wind from the mountain chills her exposed fingers. She stops and looks up at the nearby trees. It feels like there might be a chill coming. Colder weather. We should prepare for that. As I feel the chill wind run across our campsite, I look over to Sybil. Looks like it's going to be a cold night. And I reach out and touch her hand. Sandra, you know I think you're beautiful and I would love nothing more. However, now that we're working together, I think it's best that we perhaps keep at least six inches between us at all times. And I move away from her. Sybil opens her own bedroll by the fire and climbs inside. Sandra remains sitting on the log for a moment before retiring to her own bedroll. A few hours after dawn, the party continues the march. The woods have thinned to a more dusty, rocky terrain with an unobscured view of the world wall filling their vision. The mountain face in the distance rises up to an increasingly dense patch of white snow, then disappears into the dark clouds above, the only clear sky now behind them. 
Barris is cautiously leading the way, his lightly billowing green cloak, the only color and movement, contrasting the deadly still gray and white wall before him. Pebax is following closely, followed by Sybil right behind him, as Sundra is taking up the rear guard. As we're walking, in the morning light, I notice Pebax's armor. It's pristine, and I've never seen him polish it. I walk a bit faster to get closer, to see if I can tell what exactly it is. It seems like some kind of exotic metal, but I can't place it. With the woods now fully behind them, the ground begins to slightly incline upwards. What began as an inclined walk has turned into a steep ascension, accompanied by ice-cold winds. The group is climbing in a tight formation, often directly following a climbing pattern, tested by the person ahead of them. Sendra looks up, seeing Sybil testing her handholds ahead of her. Her eyes linger on her ample rear end for a moment, before moving on to look at Pebax, who is wearing his entire suit of shining armor, now reflecting the gray environment around them. Watching him labor for every foot of elevation, she notices that even here, on a wind-whipped mountainside, his cape only gently billows behind him in stark defiance of the shifting gusts. Varys, on the other hand, seems to almost be enjoying the climb. Sybil tumbles past Sendra down the rock face and disappears over a cliffside. In the time it takes everyone else to turn to look, Varys has nimbly moved towards the cliff. From a ledge that I've reached that's stable enough to stand on, I call down to Sybil. Are you badly hurt? Well, I don't feel great. Sybil is 20 feet down and is slowly getting up. The layers of clothing saved her from scratches but the hard impacts of unforgiving rocks left behind deep aches, exacerbated by bone-chilling cold. Beyond and behind her, a dizzying view of the woods from which they had come earlier in the morning stretches on in the horizon. I take the length of rope that I keep in my pack, tie one end of it around my own waist, and throw the rest of it down to her. Lash yourself to me, I'll help you the rest of the way. Sybil ties the rope to her waist and painfully begins to climb up the cliff. Have I ever told you you're very kind? Just this once. When it becomes too dark to climb safely, they make a small campfire in a corner between the cliff face and a pile of rocks, and they lay out their bedrolls closely to each other and the fire. It is hard to tell if the area is offering any real relief from the winds or if it is, perhaps, only the thought of protection comforting them. After a quiet meal of jerky and bread, everyone slips into their bedrolls underneath piles of extra clothes, regretting not purchasing tents in Azalea. Sybil sleeps easily, her exhausted body all too willing to shut down and rest. However, the wind chill robs Varys, Pebax, and Sandra of respite. No matter how they settle, they're never able to find a comfortable position on the cold, hard ground. By mid-afternoon the next day, their environment has gone from inhospitable to actively hostile. 
They climb ever upward into a world of white snow, jagged rocks, and swiftly moving mists. Small snowflakes flit through their line of sight, moving horizontally in the wind. Stings, doesn't it? I wrap my blanket and bedroll around me to try and stay warm. As I make my way up the mountain, I pull my cloak in tighter to my body. I've seen storms far worse than this, but ah, stings the winds, blowing through every seam in the armor. As if in response to Peabacks, the ice sheet on which they have been walking begins to slide backward. Too exhausted to maintain their footing, they all fall simultaneously. Frosty snow buries them as they helplessly tumble with the ice. Fate intervenes, and they slam into a grouping of rocks and crags, which act as a giant sieve, roughly sifting them from the tide of snow. When the movement finally stops, they dig themselves out of the snow, which could have easily been their icy, unmarked grave. Taking a moment to check for any missing belongings, they trudge back up the newly bare mountain face. It quickly begins to accumulate a new layer of snow. The fatiguing climb has gradually turned back into an uphill march indicating that they may be approaching the peak. In the distance behind them is an otherworldly view of the tops of storm clouds, stretching out into a dark purple horizon of glittering stars and distant nebulae. They walk through a pass between two massive peaks when they see what appears to be a wooden structure ahead of them. It looks like an assembly of large broken tree limbs that have been broken off and intertwined with each other forming a barrier that stretches across the entire pass. It looks like somebody's survived the journey here before us. As they approach, the tall tangle of tree branches looms above them. I examine the wall closer to see if it's made of magical means or if it's something we could perhaps get through. This appears to be natural wood. There doesn't seem to be any magic with it, but, mm. you know, it's... Reinforced by the cold, of course. Sure. I continue examining the wall to see if there are any weak points. I make my way over to the wall. I try to find a space big enough to peer through to see what's on the other side. Sandra, do you see this? I do. It looks like there's some kind of structure on the other side. I rub my hands together try and warm my fingers up in preparation to climb the wall. Ferris tests a few tree branches and begins to scale the 20-foot wall. Upon reaching the top, he balances on a gnarled, upside-down tree trunk. Once his footing is sure, he looks up beyond the wall. Guys, there's some buildings in here, but lots of bones. Varys sees that the barrier isn't exactly a wall blocking off the pass, but an enormous, roughly circular structure which stretches the entire width of the corridor. Inside the towering wooden circle is a floor comprised of intermingled wooden branches, vegetation, and snow, 
haphazardly coming together to form a rough surface. Three alabaster dome structures with brown spots are in the center of the ring, large enough to house perhaps one person each. Sweeping his vision up and beyond the domes to the other side of the ring, he sees a massive pile of mixed animal and humanoid bones. Upon surveying the perimeter of the ring, he notices there are no gates or entrances. There's no way in, except over the wall. We might be able to warm up in the shelters. Do we know if it's safe? Can you see anyone? No one alive. I throw down the rope. A rope? I wasn't made for climbing, but okay. Sentra, could you help a lady out? Of course. Sandra interlocks her fingers and squats, hefting Sybil exactly when her foot hits her palms. Sybil efficiently utilizes her limited momentum with panache, ripping hold of the lip of the wooden structure. Varys kneels to help her up the rest of the way. While Varys assists Sybil, Sandra runs to the base of the stony spire against the wooden wall and leaps, jumping from stone to branch and back to stone. A patch of ice unsteadies her, sending her sprawling back to the ground. The pain of her injuries is not severe, but also not insubstantial. Try the rope! I begrudgingly decide to use the rope. Sandra stands and dusts the snow off of her back and rear end before gripping the rope and beginning to climb. Varys and Sybil both pull on the rope at the same time, jarring Sandra, causing her to lose her footing. She once again falls backward into the snow. She closes her eyes and reins in her anger and embarrassment. This is the stupidest mission I've ever been on. I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. Just... Just tie the end around you, and we'll pull you up. Sandra ties the rope around her waist and is slowly lifted. Peebax awkwardly climbs alongside her, his armor limiting his movements. Is anybody else's fluids in their skulls solidifying slowly? I think mine are. It's so cold. With great effort from all parties, Sandra and Peebax safely make it to the top. As we're looking out over the top of this structure, I realize I can't see anything, and I want to get a better look. So I lower myself down, trying to be careful, trying to be sneaky. As Sybil hops from branch to tree trunk, she notices a stark absence of anything that might indicate inhabitants. There are no stone fire circles, no building materials, no animal pens or paths. Just wood, the three domes, and the pile of bones at the other side of the ring. I, uh, tie the rope to the top to hold fast while the others climb down to safety, and I'll follow them down last. I notice something sticking out of the snow. I touch it, and it seems like I could pull it out, so I grab hold and pull. She pulls on the glossy white stalk near one of the white domes, noticing that it feels more like a soft bone than a plant. At first, it doesn't move, seemingly rooted in place. Grasping it with both hands and giving it a stronger tug, it releases. Sybil raises the tough white stalk out of the snowy wood pile, 
to her astonishment, she holds in her hands a single enormous red feather about the length of her arm. I'm a bit in shock and I don't know what to do with it. I look to the group to see if they've seen. Everyone else is still at the top of the wooden wall, focusing on anchor points for the rope and tying knots. She looks from the feather to the white oval-shaped dome next to her. A simple idea is beginning to form in the back of her mind. An idea which starts as a whisper, but quickly intensifies into a foreboding scream. She reaches out to touch the dome. I notice the surface is rough and speckled and it seems familiar. Oh no. Oh no. Sybil looks over the dome just in time to see a gargantuan bird crest over the wood wall as cloudy tendrils streak behind the expanse of its enormous wings. Everyone, look at the sky. We're in a rock's nest. What the fuck? Sybil, get out of there, now. What kind of beast is this? The red-feathered rock soars above them, pumping its massive wings to gain altitude. Its talon is grasping a shaggy, deer-like animal whose antler is embedded in the side of the bird's leg. A stream of vibrant blood pours from the creature's matted fur, but it does not struggle or move at all. By the gods, we need to leave now! The rock circles once, now aware of the intruders within its nest. It tilts its wing to begin spiraling down closer. It will be upon them soon. Get ready, everyone! This fight's gonna be a tough one. We can do this together! I realize I'm standing very close to an egg. Probably not the place I want to be, so I move closer to the wall so that I can be there when my teammates join me. Sendra, we must stand together to fight this thing. Come down and join me. Sybil's words wash over me. I feel inspired. Sybil's years of experience as a bard have taught her how to use words to rouse the emotions and stoke the motivations of others. The power she wields both comes from and transcends the words themselves. It is through this power that she gained the ability to inspire confidence within her allies or sow seeds of uncertainty within her adversaries on an almost supernatural level. As I see the creature flying closer to me and the rest of my group, I hurl an insult and hope that it trips it up. You vile creature, keep away. Her words have no effect on the rock, though it may be unable to hear her over the tremendous gusts of wind. It changes the angle of its wings and flaps ferociously to slow itself down, creating a hurricane blast in front of it. Sybil is lifted off her feet and thrown into the side of the nest, unable to move against the oppressive force. Above her, Varys quickly wraps his arm around the anchor rope and leans into the wind, cutting it with his cloak. Out of the peripherals of his vision, he sees Pivax and Sendra lift up into the air and fly behind him, disappearing into the fog. Looking down, he sees Sybil pinned to the side of the nest through sheer wind force. Sybil, grab the rope, climb to safety! I draw my bow, knocking an arrow, taking aim for the rock's eye. Time to take this down fast. Defying all odds, the arrow hits its mark. The rock recoils midair, continues to hover above its nest. 
One perfect shot. Just one more. I have to end this. The arrow once again strikes true. The rock clumsily flaps its wings at its own eyes, trying to free the obstruction. It has to be blinding. I think now's the time to attack. Oh! Oh, my bones! My bones are shattered! Pebax and Sandra slowly begin to stir. They cautiously sit up and clutch their wounds, looking up at the 30-foot cliff from whence they fell. My body aches from the fall, but I have to keep going. I have to get back to them. They may need my help. That was a mighty fall. Sandra! Sandra, are you okay? I'm fine. How about you? Uh, I am a little dinged up, you could say. Uh, oh. Well, I have some healing spells. How are you? Are you damaged? That's all. I'm a bit hurt, but we need to get back up there. The others are still fighting. I pull myself up out of the snow and start making my way. No, I know what I'll do. Sandra initiates a wordless invocation and begins to connect with the Raven Queen, her deity. Ibex rises from the ground and watches her march toward the cliff. As she gets closer, the shadows around her seem to darken and rise toward her like iron filings to a magnet. The black shadows appear to congeal and envelop her until she completely disappears in the shadow fell, leaving behind black raven feathers which fall slowly to the white snow. Sandra! Huh? Oh, well. Well, that was a neat trick. Sandra! Sandra! Oh. Don't worry, team. I'll be there in a moment. At the edge of the cliff above Pebex, a localized darkness appears to curl, condense, and darken into a black, turbid shadow. Stepping out of the shadow, I pull my crossbow up and lay my sights on the rock in front of me. And release. The arrow flies by Varus at the top of the nest and plunges into the side of the great beast. Wasting no time, Sendra relentlessly walks forward while reloading her weapon, never taking her eyes off of the red feathered rock. Thirty feet below Sendra, Pebax looks up and reaches for a protruding handhold in the rock face. He begins to climb. Uh, yeah. One, one handhold at a time. No longer pinned to the side of the nest, Sybil falls into the intertwined timber beneath her, landing on all fours. She quickly rises to her feet and sees the strands of blood trickling from the thrashing rock's eyes, as well as a crossbow bolt buried under its ribcage. I think I can make a difference here. I think. I try to cast a spell to change its shape into something more adorable. Grasping a jutting piece of wood from the wall with one hand for stability, she extends the other toward the rock, flying above her, focusing her words and intentions. Feathers to fur, talons to toes, morph to a rabbit. 
The rock's form shifts and quivers erratically for a split second before beginning to shrink. Talons recede into its feet, releasing the shaggy creature in its grasp. The creature dangles by its caught antler for a moment before falling straight down, narrowly missing the tree and eggs beneath it. Above, the confused rock tries to stay aloft as its wings dwindle and its feathers melt into white fur. The arrows in its eyes slide out and fall away, ejected from the diminishing animal. It appears to be gaining more altitude as the conversion accelerates, only to level off once the transformation is complete. Varys and Sybil watch as a white rabbit tumbles from the sky before crashing into the ground. Everything is still for a moment. The very second the rabbit dies, the polymorph spell expires. The rabbit then explodes in size, rapidly regrowing and changing back into a rock. The expansion is so fast that its growing body shatters its nearby eggs, sending white eggshell flying in every direction. Orange yolk and viscous fluid splatters out, and three partially developed human-sized bird fetuses all fall to the ground, writhing and twitching. The full-sized rock is now covered in the amniotic fluid of its dying young. Okay. Ah. 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 Winners never quit, quitters never win. We're gonna do this one more time. I come, Patriot Steepy. Pedax dashes toward the cliffside, using his momentum to climb. A root beneath his feet snaps, sending him sprawling backward to the ground. Transformation has restored the rock's original form, including its eyes, which are now functioning normally. The wet rock rights itself and stands, towering above both Sybil and Varys. I look up at my teammate, and I try to instill him with confidence. In the midst and the heat of battle, I am resolved to live or die with you. Let's do this, Varys. The rock spreads its wings, spraying yellowish fluid to every corner of the nest. It looks at Sybil, somehow knowing that she was the source of the power that killed its young. The bird leaps at Sybil, striking her in the chest with its sharp beak, pinning her to the side of the nest. Continuing to restrain her, the rock grapples Sybil with its talons, ripping into her flesh. Once she is securely in its grasp, the bird takes to the skies. Sybil sees everything getting smaller beneath her. She rises 30 feet into the cold air. I have to end this. I knock an arrow and aim for the bird's heart. The arrow hits the bird's chest. Not enough. Another shot. Quickly knocking another arrow into his longbow, Varys once again takes aim and fires. The rock shudders and releases Sybil into the thin air. I scramble, reaching with my hands frantically until I reach one of its talons and grip with all of my might. Sybil hangs onto the end of the talon with one hand, wildly swinging with the flailing rock's movements. 
Seeing Sybil nearly dropped by the rock, I leap from the wall to get beneath her in case she needs to be caught. As he reaches the zenith of his arc, Ferris utilizes a monk technique known among his people as slow fall. Gravity's grip upon him loosens as he seemingly surfs through the air, then tucks and rolls once he hits the ground. Gracefully springs to his feet, losing no momentum as he runs forward. I see Sybil dangling from the underside of this massive beast. I close my eyes for a second and focus, melding into the, my surroundings, making sure that this beast won't see me. Dark ripples bend the air around Sendra, distorting her form and allowing her to blend into the mountainside. Shadows extend themselves unnaturally and envelop her, completely hiding her from view. I stand behind the slope, peeking around the corner, waiting for my time. And as soon as I see an opening, I spin, I face the creature, and release my crossbow bolt into its neck. The bolt swiftly enters the rock's neck and exits the other side. Streaming out blood gushes from the great bird's neck, splashing onto Sybil below. Her grip begins to loosen. Uh, the third time's a charm. Uh, okay. Ready? One, two, <laughs> Peebeck scrambles up the cliff wall, eager to join his companions in battle. Already exhausted from the arduous trek and the previous attempts to scale the cliff, his considerable armor proves too cumbersome for the climb. He once again falls backward into the snow. <laughs> you slippery, slippery slope! How have you bested me again? <laughs> Let's try one more time, shall we? The wind is blowing all around me, and I see my, my teammates trying to help me, and I feel weak. I remember the potion I have in my bag, hanging on to the talon with one arm. At the elbow, I reach into my bag and pull out the potion and decork it with my mouth. And I drink it. Sybil is able to swallow most of the red and purple potion amidst the chaotic movements. A bit of her strength immediately returns as she lets go of the empty bottle to grasp onto the talon, still slick with blood. I quickly look down to see what's beneath me, and I notice Varys. It seems like he's ready. Our eyes connect. So I trust him to catch me. Varys! I've got you! Close my eyes. And I let go. Sybil feels gravity slowly exert its pull on her as she begins to plummet to the ground far below. The tatters of her ripped clothing begin to flutter as she picks up speed. The rock's talon is now out of reach. There is no going back. Her life now lies in Varys' hands. I put my full trust in Varys to catch me, and I open my eyes. I see the rock above me. Watching Sybil fall, I don't know if I can catch her. I'm so tired. I whisper a lullaby melody to it, hoping to rack it with pain. Not knowing if this will be her final utterance, Sybil casts an enchantment spell known as Dissonant Whispers. A grim sense of irony grips her, somehow feeling that it is right that she might die with a song on her beautiful lips. 
The magical melody seeps into the rock's very being, and its eyes begin to bulge from its skull. Sybil sees blood begin to overflow from its terrible beak as it turns to fly away. As she closes her eyes once again, a slight smile creeps onto her lips as she accepts her fate. Sybil and Varys look to the skies to see the rock making a speedy retreat. It flies into the cloud cover below, vanishing from sight. With Sybil still in my arms, I look around. Never before have I seen this kind of carnage. As I stand, I place her on her feet. <sighs> I look around at my teammates, and I realize someone is missing. Where's Peebax? Watching the rock fly away, I look around. I know Sybil and Varys are in the nest. Peebax. I walk over to the cliff and peer over the side. Thirty feet beneath her, Sendra sees Peebax lying on his back, limbs extended. We've won! Uh, are you okay? Oh, give me a moment or two. I can heal myself up in a jiffy. <laughs> oh, do any of you, more importantly, need any healing at all? I think Sybil will. I'll throw you down a rope. Thank you. Varys looks down to see his green cloak soiled with blood. He looks to Sybil, catching glimpses of torn flesh and scrapes along her body. Some of this blood is yours. How badly are you hurt? Um, I, I, I think a lot of that blood is mine. Um, and I, I'm sorry to have ruined your clothing. I don't have any more healing potions. I wave my hand in dismissal of her apology as I kneel down amidst the yokes to dig a potion out of my bag. As he opens his pouch, I take note several vials in there. It's interesting. Searching through my pack, I find one of my stronger healing potions. Here, Sybil. This should help. I take the potion from his hand, and I nod graciously. Thank you, Varys. You're so kind. I open the potion, and I drink it. The very moment that Sybil downs the purple and red potion, the outer edges of her worst wounds turn a similar color and glisten before beginning to close. What were bloody open wounds now shrink into cuts. What were cuts now shrink into scratches. With the adrenaline from the battle wearing off, the cold begins to set back in. Varys draws in his cloak. Well, you're looking better. I feel better, thank you. Let's go find our friends. Yeah, where's Peebax? I look around the nest to take note of my teammates, but I don't see anyone except Varys. Are they on the other side of this nest? They were blown out uh, over the cliff when the rock came. Oh dear. We should go get them. We should. They walk towards the rope, still secured to the top of the rock's nest, and begin to climb. <clears throat> on reaching the top, they look down the path to see Sendra attach a rope to a tree, then throw the other end down the cliff. 
Paris glances the other side of the nest to confirm the rock's absence before descending with Sybil. They approach Sendra and see her pulling on the rope. Moments later, a shining silver gauntlet rises and grasps a root at the edge of the cliff, followed by a now familiar helmet. After struggling a moment to gain the momentum to heave a leg up, he awkwardly hoists his entire body over the edge of the cliff, rolling away from it. His armor remains immaculate. P-Max, good to see you again. Were you over there the whole time? Well, yes, I was. Well, no, that's not, that's not true. I went from there to there and then back down to here and then I was, I was, I got up to there, I think, and then I, I made it to about a half, a half, right, right there, see, right there, um, near that little rock, and then we're back up to about there, and then back down here again. What happened to you? Well, P-backs, uh, I've, I've had better days. I typically like to look better than this, as we know. <laughs> I look over at Sendra. And you? Are you well? Sendra's armor and apparel are now scratched and smeared with blood. Small blood-stained rips of clothing reveal pale gray skin and grisly wounds beneath. She looks down to examine herself. I'm, uh, I'm fine, I think. Well, that's a relief. You all do need to freshen up a bit, I believe. At least become as shiny and clean as my armor, if nothing else. Sybil looks down to her torn and filthy garments and touches the most soiled areas. As I sweep my hands down my clothing to clean them up, I hum a soft melody. I hate to look afraid. Prestidigitation is the first magical trick spellcasters learn and practice with. Having utterly mastered it years ago, Sybil uses it to clean the bloodstains from her attire. When she finishes, the bloodstains are gone completely leaving only colorful, albeit torn, fabric behind. I look up and down my body, covered in yoke and blood, and notice how clean and spotless Sybil suddenly is. Could you help me as well? Of course, good sir. I reach out and brush his clothing and hum the same melody. <sighs> many thanks, many thanks. I bow. Well, um, that was difficult, but I think we should press on, no? I agree. Pebex, you have got to see the mess we made. What, 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 what mess? They return to the gigantic nest wall and begin to ascend. Still exhausted from the long trip and the battle, they cautiously help each other climb up and back down into the nest. They walk through the carnage, stepping over eggshell, yolk, blood, and other fluids, mixed in with the light frost and tree branches. They step around the pink avian babies, laying lifelessly on the ground, still covered in a layer of slick, translucent albumen. Beyond them, in the center of the nest, lies the animal the rock was carrying before it was polymorphed. I approached the shaggy creature. Varys investigates the animal before him. Despite its partial mutilation, he can tell it was once a beautiful creature. Its lustrous golden brown fur shines in the sun, and its antlers flow gracefully from its head, as if shaped by water currents. I've never seen anything quite like this. 
Must be, uh, from another realm. Its antlers are definitely more for beauty than for purpose. Despite its foreignness, I carve into its haunch. I'm sure I can make, I don't know, one or two days worth of stew from it. As Varus harvests the animal, Pebax, Sybil, and Sendra walk to the pile of sun-bleached bones on the opposite side of the nest. The stack appears to be solely animal bones, but as they get closer, they see a partially buried skeleton wearing strips of mangled chainmail, holding the ornate hilt of a longsword, as well as a shield in the other hand. Only bits of leathery skin remain around the head, and suggest that this was a half-orc who was stripped of flesh and viscera months ago. Sybil leans in for a closer inspection. Do you see there, just on his neck? It looks like a tribal tattoo. I'm not sure what tribe, but what do you think? Sendra shrugs. Varus joins the group and the examination. I wonder if this must be one of the other adventurers the Elder sent before us. It's what I was thinking too, yes. With my quarterstaff, I gently poke at the armor on the corpse. I've seen the dead rise before, and there's still enough flesh on these bones to operate. Varus pushes against the chainmail. Frozen tatters of skin fused to the armor tear from the bones. Poor man. Well, we, we could, uh, we could take all of this armaments and whatnot and sell them or use them as trade. You can always come back and take it with us. We could leave it out of respect for the dead. They're dead. They don't need it. Take it with you. Walking over to the edge of the nest, I climb on top of the other side. I look down the other side of the mountain to see where we're headed. The corridor through the peaks continues to the other side, with a gentle slope heading into the distant clouds below. A single rock feather stands in the snow, near a trail of blood left behind by the retreating beast. The others join her, then climb down the side of the nest as they begin their descent into the pillowy white clouds before them. Friends, wait, wait. I kneel into the snow, rummaging through my bag once more. I pull out three potions, one for each of my comrades. Please drink these before our journey down the slope. As I'm distributing the potions, I know I have one for everyone but myself. The potions are clear with swirling sediment gently falling to the bottom. What should we expect from this? These will help you climb safely down. I will climb down unaided to atone for the atrocities that we've committed on the top of this mountain. You could have given this to me hours ago. I didn't realize how badly you would need them. Oh, you didn't, did you? I was holding on to these for an emergency. Well, perhaps I don't need it if it's for an emergency. I think our definition of emergency is a little different. I take the potion from Varys, pop the cork, and drink it down. Okay then, bottoms up. I open the bottle and see its bizarre sediment at the bottom. It smells sour. I down it regardless. It will help. Everyone hands the empty vials back to Varys, who puts them back into his pack. Everyone immediately feels reinvigorated 
and their sense of self-movement and body position heightens. They begin to walk into the clouds. Ferris, are you quite sure you'll be safe? If the mountain deems I'm worthy to live, I might. I walk over to Varys, pulling out the rope from my pack, and hand it to him. Tie this around your waist. I said I must do this unaided. It's the only way to atone. You are part of this team. We will not lose one to bad judgment. You are correct. You will not lose one to bad judgment. But you may lose one to fate. And I turn away. Feedback stops at the comparatively small feather sticking up from the snow. Would anyone, would anyone like a trophy? That last feather, perhaps? Yes, no? I kneel down in the snow, pluck the feather from the ground, and pin it on the other side of his cloak, on the opposite position from where the flower from the meadow is. For you, Peebex, to remember the fight. Fight? (laughs) 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 Well, it was a hard uphill climb, but somehow we made it. Thank you, Clover. After a strenuous but uneventful climb down the mountain, the party finally breaks below the chilly, fog-like clouds at midday, granting them their first view of the other side. They sit and rest for a moment to have some water and survey the land hundreds of feet below them. There's still a good deal of snow to contend with on the way down, but they see that it tapers off near the craggy base of the world wall. A sea of emerald green trees stretches far into the horizon, seemingly infinite in size. There are patches of vibrant color peppering the treetops with what must be enormous flowers. In the far distance, through the haze of atmospheric distortion, a faded mountain shape rises from the shifting ocean of green leaves. (sighs) I'm a bit tired, and I think that if I were to make a recommendation, I'd prefer to to, to head on. Anyone have any thoughts? It would be nice to um, set up camp somewhere a little warmer. I agree. We should keep going. Peabacks? Nah. All right. Everyone tightens their boots, collects their belongings, and prepares to hike into the night. The sky has slowly changed from a blazing sunset panorama of red and orange light into a starry purple dusk. With the patches of snow behind them, Bebex, Sundra, Varus, and Sybil march down through the rough terrain to a rocky outcropping 100 feet above the canopy ahead. The cold air has become more temperate, and the wide cliff edge seems like a good place to make camp for the night. The view is nothing short of stunning. A flock of strange, iridescent birds skim the top of the forest and land on an enormous petal of a multicolored flower. The plant life here grows in unfamiliar, but alluring ways. What a strange place. It's beautiful, though. It is that. Look at the sun. Ferris points to where the sun once was now a dark purple backdrop of the dense woodlands. The sun is setting in the north. Sybil turns to look back at the mountain. Then straight ahead, a look of realization dawns upon her face. Ah, that's a good point. I hadn't even noticed. 
Interesting. Below them, trees sway in the wake of something large passing through, away from the edge of the forest. I think we shouldn't get any closer. This would be a good place to camp. But if we can hear that, is it really a good place to camp? It could accidentally step on us in the night. We should be fine as long as somebody takes watch. I think we should try and find somewhere more sheltered. I'm gonna need a fire to roast this leg. Or I could create food and water for us. The offer always stands. We can certainly subsist on your food and water for the night, but I think something more sheltered would keep us safe. I think with whatever's down there, we should probably camp here tonight. But here we're exposed to the elements, and I didn't bring any firewood. Did any of you? I have but a tinderbox and some torches. That's all. And I have nothing that I can offer that would burn long enough to keep us warm. So it appears we have a decision to make. Do we want to expose ourselves here or risk going down there? I guess we have no choice but to go down. I look down for a perspective path ahead. There's not many good openings. It's going to be a lot of climbing. The potions that I've given you guys has worn off. It's going to be hours longer before we reach a safe place. Unless we were able to fly or something, yes? How will we accomplish that? Dear Peabax, I know you don't know me well, but trust me to handle this. I reach for the instrument on my back and pull it into my hands. It feels familiar, and I brush my hands over its strings. I pluck a few, creating a sweet melody. My hands start turning into feathers. Sybil gently places her violin in its case, knowing in a few moments she won't have hands with which to hold it. Having just cast Polymorph on herself, she gradually increases in size, and her skin begins to ripple and change. Feathers expand outward in every direction, breaking up her moonlit silhouette. Her arms begin to lengthen and change into folded wings, and her feet expand into leathery claws with vicious-looking black talons. Her red hair flows into feathers, and her feathers appear to incorporate and absorb her clothing. Once the magical transformation is complete, a ten-foot, fiery red barn owl stands before the group. It bows and motions for Sandra to climb onto her back. Sandra approaches the owl and mounts her without hesitation. Once secured, the owl rights itself and walks to the edge of the cliff and spreads its wings. Wait, wait a minute. The entire time I was scrambling up the side of that mountain, you could have turned into an owl and picked me up? The owl leaps from the cliff. Sandra feels her insides lurch into her throat as the mountainside rushes past her. The wind flings her hood back, allowing loose strands of black hair to furiously whip around her head. Her grip on Sybil's neck feathers tightens as they glide to the rapidly approaching forest canopy below. Flying closer, Sandra sees that the canopy has a faint sparkle to it the intertwining flora that make it up weave into complex, symbiotic shapes between the leaves. The owl skims the treetops, then abruptly banks downward to swoop through an opening. The descent into the trees is exhilarating, the wind whipping past my face. Once beneath the canopy, a glittering natural wonderland reveals itself, 
Many plants and insects glow in the dark corners beyond the moonlight's reach. Strange-looking flowers bloom and track their movements through the air, seemingly watching them. With the forest floor quickly approaching, Sandra feels powerful wings begin to flap beneath her abdomen. Just before touching down, the owl catches the air with its outstretched wings and pitches vertically, seizing all forward momentum before gracefully landing. My surroundings are truly alien. The exact opposite of Shadowfell, my home. Everything is vibrantly colored. Greens, purples, yellows. It's beautiful in its own way. I slide off the back of Sybil, having my hands linger on her wings just a moment longer to feel the softness. I walk around to the front and give her a nod, and she takes off. A gust of wind blows past Sendra as the owl rises into the air, eventually disappearing through a starry opening in the canopy. Now alone, Sendra stands motionless to observe her surroundings. After a few minutes of stillness, the local fauna cautiously reveal themselves. Three mammalian creatures with bushy, squirrel-like tails, fox-like snouts, and small antlers scurry around the base of a nearby tree. One of them races to the top of the tree and grasps at a shaft of moonlight. He pulls a handful of the light from the shaft and scampers back down, the glowing light emanating through his claws. Upon showing it to the others, they dart back into the underbrush. To her side, a nearby bush is slowly pulling itself up the trunk of a tree with tentacle-like vines. She looks up and sees an owl perched on the branch. It is the only familiar-looking creature she's seen so far. Then it opens its eyes, which are distinctly cat-like. It turns its head 360 degrees before closing its eyes and ruffling its feathers. Okay. These creatures are very different from anything that I've encountered before. So I pull myself as close to a tree as I can to try to make myself more inconspicuous. As she moves to the tree, a nearby shrub begins to quiver rhythmically. The owl above opens its eyes to stare at Sandra. I pull my crossbow, notch a bolt, and just make sure I'm ready for anything. So, do we draw straws to see who goes next? I, for one, would love to get off this accursed mountain. I've spent a little too much time climbing and scrabbling for hours. I'm sure you understand. Oh, fully. Fully. Excellent. By the way, I... Really appreciate your sacrifice with your potions and not taking one for yourself. It's very selfless of you. I appreciate the sacrifice. It's those things that would make us successful. So thank you. I bow graciously. Pebex, your chariot arrives. The giant owl lands nearby and tucks in its wings. Ah, she returns! I will see you at the bottom, Varus. I dash along and leap onto the back of the owl. Here, here, here we go. It's oh, oh, a lot softer than I thought. Oh. Let's go, Sybil. Away! Bebek's increased weight doesn't seem to affect the owl. 
who dives from the cliffside to the treetops below. Descending down into the wood, on the back of this beautiful owl, it's the most breathtaking vista I've ever seen. The light doesn't pierce the ground in all the places, but the colors are so bright. Beautiful, pink, they, they glow underneath in many places. It's unlike anything I've ever witnessed. I reach the bottom, climb down, and start looking for Zendra. Pebax scans his surroundings as the owl takes flight behind him. Zendra, are you nearby? Oh, crap! The cat-eyed owl screeches at Pebax before jumping into the air and flying away at supersonic speed. What? What? What the dead? Dad! Oh, thank goodness it's just you. Are you okay? I'm fine. You're just very loud. Sorry. I reduced my tones. They stand in silence for a moment, trying to detect any incoming threats. Well, we should start setting up. Let's. They begin to scout the area for a suitable camping site being careful not to step on the fluorescent fungi and avoiding the thorny hanging moss. Though there is no sign of civilization and no evidence of intelligent life, they still cannot shake the feeling of being watched. So, Pebax. Yes? What's, uh, what's the deal? What do you mean? Why won't you take off your helmet? I think it's easier to lead with uh, some degree of Anonymity? I... You of all people would know about the need to preserve a secret or two, I'm sure. Of course. But, being my curious nature... What are you driving at? I may have taken a peek. Oh. What have you seen exactly? I've seen your face. I just want to know what your deal is. Pivak stands still for a moment, then turns his back to Sandra, casually examining the bark of a nearby tree with his gauntlet. Well, I've been persecuted many times. By uh, appearance, sometimes belies my intent, if you can understand that. I think I understand that more than anyone in this group. Excellent. So you do understand, and uh, if we could be discreet about this between us until such time as I'm willing to reveal myself, I would appreciate it very much. You have my word. Thank you. I extend to you the same courtesies in full throughout our time together. Your secret's safe with me, but I want to know. Oh, you're just looking for confirmation, are you? I am. They begin to walk towards a clearing in the middle of a ring of trees. Besides the dead wood on the ground, the small, harmless-looking plant life looks as if it may be comfortable to rest upon for the evening. Pebax stops in the center and places his hands on his hips as Sandra stands behind him, out of reach of his gently billowing cape. Pebax. What? Confirmation. Alone on the cliff, Vera sits cross-legged, observing the glittering heavens above. I notice foreign stars in the sky. 
constellations I don't recognize. Wait, is that one moving? These shapes, these creatures in the sky? I must remember these. I realize it's been some time. I judge the moon. An hour's passed? Where could they be? As if on cue, the majestic owl rises and lands at the edge of the cliff, shaking its feathers. I was starting to think I'd have to come search for you on foot. The owl cocks its head questioningly. Well, you can tell me the story after we get back with the group. Varys collects Sybil's belongings and double checks to make sure nothing was left behind. I climb gently onto Sybil's back, careful not to pluck any of her newfound feathers, noticing how fiery red they are like her hair. The owl turns to the cliff's edge once Varys is secure and spreads its wings. I extend my arm out in a bond of secrecy to Pebax. Your secret is safe with me. I grasp her arm in solidarity. Thank you, my dear. Very appreciated. Sandra and Pebax turn and look up as Sybil and Varys break through the canopy. Sybil glides through a ray of starlight, which sticks to her feathers like spider silk. She lands, and after Varys dismounts, begins to shrink. Feathers retract into skin and clothing, and her red hair sprouts back into its red waterfall appearance as the transformation completes. Upon her shoulders, the starlight lace sits and flutters delicately with her movements. I notice the moonlight touching my skin and my clothing. I look at it and then smile at the rest of the group. How far have you gotten with setting up camp? Should we go to another location, or does this seem okay? Varys and Sybil look into the dark woods while Sandra and Pebax continue searching for a suitable campsite, unaware of the faint chuckle the other two have just heard. I wearily draw my bow. Pebax notices Varys and begins to look around suspiciously. Sandra follows suit. I notice the creature hide behind the tree. I think we should hold our fire. It doesn't appear to be attacking us right now, but be on guard. It may not be attacking now, but it's a blight. Born of corruption, it might have something to do with our mission here. We should keep an eye on it. I agree. Be at the ready for anything. The creature cautiously makes its way out from behind the tree, then dives behind a bush. It pokes its head out through the multicolored leaves. It doesn't get any closer. It just circles and observes. I knock an arrow, draw back, carefully aiming, just a warning shot, and loose. An arrow sails harmlessly above the bush and into the darkness. The laugh carries into the distance. It sounds like a signal of some kind. The reciprocated laughter surrounding the party seems to worry the hiding creature. We should have camped on the slope. It pulls back into the bush, obscuring itself from view. Moments later, it appears by another tree and begins to climb, still watching everyone. Long, spindly fingers tap the bark as it strangely arches its limbs to accommodate the shift in gravity. About the size of a large dog, it has a bulbous nose beneath large, reflective eyes. The creature looks humanoid, though wooden. It is segmented like an insect, defying normal categorization. 
Does anyone feel safe here? No. We need to watch our step. And Varys, I would not fire arrows randomly into the forests again. Trust, I will not. But I think that we should head away from the laughter. Agreed. With haste. They look west, back from whence they came. They see only trees and luminescent vines in the far distance. Confused, they look north, then south. The world wall is nowhere to be seen. The effect is unsettling. This wood is so captivating, is it not? It's starting to feel more stifling than anything. In the distance, a second set of footsteps becomes audible. I notice Sendra pull out her crossbow and ready a bolt. I gently press my hand against the crossbow and shake my head. I'm afraid to threaten these creatures. I'm readying a spell to put them to sleep if necessary. Fine. But if it doesn't work, then I kill it. And you're ready, of course. Sensing danger nearby, I prepare my bliss. Spell for my friends, just in case. A short humanoid sprints out of the woods at full speed, skids to a stop, then darts behind thin shrubbery. Its tiny, human-looking feet stick out from the side. Where? Where has it gone? It's right there. Where has it gone? There. The creature moves from behind the bush to hide behind a sapling, which barely offers any cover. Where? I raise an eyebrow at Peabax. Peabax? It's, it's right there. Orienting his gaze to Sybil's direction, he sees a child-sized creature with a wild head of hair ducking and trying to hide. Uh, uh, oh, oh, hmm. oh yes, there it is. Of course. Oh. It, was, it was a lot shorter than I thought. <laughs> yes. Sybil has difficulty making out what the creature is in the low light, but others in the party with low light and dark vision can easily glean more details. I... I think it's a gnome? Hiding behind the sapling is a wildly disheveled female gnome. Her clothing is filthy and torn. A gnome? I realize I could try to communicate with it. In gnomish, I say, Sophia, give me a pen or a team. Do you intend to harm us? We need to start moving. and makes a quick swiping gesture to the ground. Something like sand materializes out of thin air and begins to float gently down into 20-foot radius in front of her. The gnome gets it in her eyes and shakes it off, continuing to run at the group. The cackling wood creature also gets sand in its eyes before instantly falling asleep, gently dropping to the soil. As I watch Sybil cast her spell at the small creature running towards us, I see it doesn't take effect. I lose my bolt. The gnome stops running and looks down to the crossbow bolt protruding from her arm. She then falls to her knees and looks up. All the hope drains from her ancient face. No! I step out in front of the group and throw my hands up. Please! Please, friends, we've had enough blood. Let's just see what they need. Be careful, Varys. It could be trying to trick us. This is an unfamiliar alien land. I notch another bolt in my crossbow. My blessed spell remains at the ready. 
I cautiously approach the gnome, kneeling now on the forest floor. I pass by the cackling creature. What is it? Wood? Bug? I can't tell. But it certainly grew up to hide well in these woods. I kneel down next to this stranger, loosing my pack onto the ground. Inspecting the wound, I notice their coat used to be fine, but now is fallen to rags and tatters. I look into their clear green eyes. Despite their obvious age, the eyes remain unclouded. I dig through my bag, removing another potion. I gently uncork it and offer it to the creature. Please, drink this while I tend your wound. I take the potion that the wood elf offers, and I drink it. Thankful that they finally realize that I mean them no harm. Varys quickly but gently removes the arrow. Ah! He then wipes away the ruby-colored blood to see the gaping wound shrink into a wet abrasion. Under closer inspection, Varys sees gems and other adornments sewn into her rumpled clothing. Clasps, buttons, pockets, and securements serve as obvious excuses to enjoy decoration and craftsmanship. Her dirty, chocolate-colored cloak is hem-stitched with a decorative touch, and her quarterstaff is heavily carved and etched with designs. Varys is able to get a closer look at the laughing wood creature, now dozing behind the gnome. It is dark brown all over, and its hair looks like a bundle of twigs and sticks, though its body looks to be more bug-like than plant. It is strikingly thin, with orb-like eyes under closed, finely segmented eyelids. At the tips of its long, spindly fingers are sharp claws. Varys turns his attention back to the tiny gnome. We are weary. We've been traveling many days to get here. Do you know of a safe place for us to rest? We can get to know you? I have a camp within about 300 yards of here. I turn to the group. I say we trust them and join them at their camp. What say you? I say yes. Let us follow. This is still a strange place. And I'm not sure of the intentions of this small creature, this gnome. But we need to rest, so for now, I'll trust them. I nod to Varys, but keep a watch on this new addition to the group. I stand, offering a hand to the gnome. I look up at the wood helm, and I take his hand. I look behind me. He who is still on the ground, sleeping. I look to the elf. Can we wake him? I look back to Sybil. Can we wake him? Of course you can wake him. He's sleeping. I walk over to he who. I gently jostle him awake. He who yawns and turns away, still asleep. It's as disturbing as it is adorable. I shake him harder. He scampers up a tree and turns around. I soothe him. He who climbs down the tree and stands on its hind legs for the first time since their encounter. 
roughly the size of a short human, though taller than the diminutive gnome. So, are these creatures your friends? This one is. After, well, after some events, I, 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 I was able to convince him to join me. And so, this one is, but no, none of the others. He who who extends a pointy finger at Varus. <laughs> I squint curiously at the creature. He who looks back at the gnome, still pointing. <laughs> he curiously watches as he bends all fours and climbs backward into the bush. He's friendly to me, which I assume means he'll be friendly to you unless given a reason not to be. The gnome stands up, not bothering to brush off the leaves and plant matter clinging to her legs. As I said, I've, we've got a camp back there. I point in the direction of my camp. And we're all very weary, and if you'd like... You can join us for the night. I have the haunch of some elk-like creature we can share if you've got a fire to roast it on. The offer makes me positively light up. Thank you, yes, please, thank you. It's been so long since I've had something substantial to eat. Apologies, but if you're inviting us to your camp for the evening, it would be good to know your name. Oh... My shoulders sag just a little, as I remember. Um, well, I I want to tell you, but it would bring me no pleasure now. Please, you, you can call me Yi. Yi? Yi. Yi. Well, all right then, Yi. I accept your offer, and you're a very gracious host. We appreciate your hospitality after our weary... Long, treacherous days. I smile genuinely. Thrilled to now have some friends. Please, please, yes. Come to my camp. With a quick look around, everyone grabs their belongings and follows Guy through the dark, luminescent woods. I take up the rear position. I still don't trust these woods. I don't fully trust this new addition. So I want to keep watch as best I can but I'm almost too tired to care. This gnome looks worse to wear than all of us put together. It's kind of a shame. Well, the safety in numbers, I say. The more of us together, the more of us there are to defeat whatever may come. We've come so far today, up and over the mountain, through the rock's nest, but this, this gnome, how long have they been here in this forest alone? This forest of wonders, strangeness, strange friends. I look forward to a fire and a bed, though. The day has certainly been trying, and despite our successes, a part of me is afraid of this new place. Despite its beauty, the flora and the fauna they're unfamiliar. And to think we might be trusting someone who might not have the best intentions, but frankly, I don't see that we have much choice. We're tired and we're hurt. And so we must accept their generosity. 
so I follow. I follow and I trust the rest of my party members. Perhaps this will turn out well. After passing a procession of strange-looking plants and old-growth trees, they arrive at a sizable felled log. Dee scrambles up the side and motions for the others to follow. Feebax has the most trouble with the climb, still completely armor-clad. Once they climb over, they find themselves surrounded by equally-sized logs, which create a circular barrier, vaguely similar to the rock's nest. At the center of the circle is a small stone fire ring and a well-worn shelter constructed from a patchwork of cloth, leaves, and dried thatch. On top of the still-glowing embers within the fire pit, a serpentine, or perhaps a worm-like creature, is perched. It turns to look at the group, though eyeless. The creature curls into itself, and moments later, two wings, ten times the size of its body, explode outward, and it flies away into the darkness, defying identification and reason in equal measure. That one wasn't mine. He who scurries through the camp and climbs up a tree. He turns back to look at the campsite, then seems to meld into the wood. Soon after, they hear his familiar cackle, only much further away. As Guy's strange creature friend moves from tree to tree, I watch it carefully. I make special note of when it seems to dissolve in and out of the bark, trying to catch a glimpse of anything out of the ordinary so that I can spot others like it in the trees. I know that this one is Guy's only friend in this entire forest. I must know what to look out for in case more come. I look around at the campsite. It appears it could accommodate us, but I wait for an official invitation before I get comfortable. I go tend to the still warm fire, stoking it a little bit and bringing it back to life. I notice everyone standing around. I look around me at all of the new faces. Please make yourselves comfortable. Let's get to know each other. I gesture to the dark one. Go ahead, sit. I survey the campsite find a good comfortable space to set up on top of one of the fallen trees and prop myself up against another. I'm sure we all appreciate you letting us stay here tonight. My name's Sindra. Thank you. I'm glad to meet you. Thank you, Sindra. After Sindra introduces herself, I take a seat next to her. I look at Guy and introduce myself as well. Guy, I'm Sybil, Sybil Silvertongue. And I appreciate your generosity. Hello, Sybil Silvertongue. What a, what a lovely name. Thank you for that. Would you like me to create some food and water? I think that Varys here might have some meat as well. It could be quite a feast. I'm sure you're hungry. We're hungry as well. Very tired, of course. Unstrapping the haunch from my pack, I raise the meat up towards Guy, an offering to our host. Do you have a spit? that I might roast it on? Yes, please, I'd, I'd love to indulge in something, something other than, well, what I've been trying to forage and put together here. It's, oh, it's been so long. Thank you so much, both of you. Yes, we can fashion that right over here. What was your name? My name is Varys. Good, good. While Varys introduces himself to our new host, 
I create food and water. There's 45 pounds of food and 30 gallons of water. Piles of beans, rice, and bread materialize onto a nearby blanket. Hollowed out wooden pails fill with water, but most of it simply seeps onto the ground with nothing available to contain it. Small green sprouts instantly emerge from the wet ground. I look at the armored figure standing stiffly. And you? I am called Belax. It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Everyone formally begins to set up camp within the protective circle of trees and logs. Guy begins putting mushrooms and herbs into a teapot while the others begin unfurling their bedrolls and organizing their belongings. I help gather kindling around in order to place it near the fire. These woods glow, but we still need warmth. Pebex breaks off a long branch to be used as a spit and hands it to Varus before continuing to collect more wood. I take the branch offered by Pebex and skin the bark with my knife. Pebax kneels to collect some dead wood at the foot of a tree when the face of the wooden creature seemingly grows out of it, grins at him, cackles, and then simply melts back into the tree. What the, what the devil? Did anyone else see that? What's that then? That's my question. What was that, that thing? What, what thing? The face in the wood. The laughing thing over there. Ah! hoo hoo uh, oh, okay. I look to one of the taller fallen trees and take a place sitting on top of it so I can keep watch. So, Gee, how did you get here? Yes, yes, of course, of course you'd want to know. Um, I, well, how about go ahead and make yourselves comfortable and, and I'll tell you, well, everything. Your kindness is very appreciated, Guy. Is it, is it safe for me to practice with my instrument? I promise not to make too much noise, of course. I, I grin and look at Sybil. Are you good or are you bad at it? Am I good? Um, well, I certainly spend an awful lot of time practicing and to be frank, I've never had a complaint. I can vouch for her dexterity. And I give Sybil a look. All right, we may have some company, but let's hear it. Sybil walks to her pack and unstraps the violin case, placing it on the ground. I have a feeling that what Guy's about to say will be an entertaining tale for the future. I pull up my violin and I begin tuning the strings quietly as I can. Sybil moves to sit on a log near the resuscitated fire opposite of Varys. Ferris is slowly rotating a haunch of the elk-like creature on a spit above the flames. Occasionally, drops of fat drip into the fire, briefly lighting up their surroundings. The smell of cooked meat wafts into the air, mixing with the earthy background smell of trees, dirt, flowers, and tea. We're all so tired, and we've been through so much. I... I know what I have, and I can only assume what you have. So, I'd like to share something with you as we set up camp and relax here. There is a, 
a very nice custom amongst my people. We take these mushrooms here and we brew a nice, relaxing, enlightening, uh, uh, very fun tea from them. Would anyone like to partake? I would not say no to your hospitality. I graciously accept the tea from my host. And with a small nod of my head, uh, I ask, does it have any special properties? Well, yes, it, um, you would, you'd call them psychedelic. After Guy mentions the potential effects of the tea, I decide it's in my best interest to not partake. Guy, you're very sweet, but unfortunately, I'm not able to uh, indulge. I think it's important that I stay alert in an unfamiliar place. No problem, dear. After Gu lets us know the properties of the tea she's given us, I take out a vial from my poison kit and slip the tea into it. I start with just a small sip. Uh, I'm uncertain of what the effects might actually be, but I don't want to be rude. Um, I'll keep it near me as the story progresses. I produce the straw out of my sleeve and sip the tea next to the fire. The effects of the tea begin to take hold almost immediately after ingesting it. The glowing lights from the plants, passing animals, starlight, and moonlight begin to quiver. Faint luminescent trails begin to weave into colorful, pulsating geometric shapes. All five senses begin to coalesce into one unified sense of pure being, only to separate and rejoin over and over in a dance of perception and consciousness. The very concept of time begins to lose its meaning and become malleable as it extends and condenses into quickly passing time lapses and gentle slow motion. The surrounding woods and the flickering fire appear to expand and contract and sink with each breath he backs and bears take. As I sip on the tea, drawing it slowly through the straw, the world slowly melts away and my companions become pure light. It's beautiful to behold. As I listen to the tale, I close my eyes and focus on the words, the feelings behind them. And it, I, can, I can see the story unfolding before me. And as I open my eyes to check on the roast, it's almost as if the characters, shadows of them, dance before my eyes until I rejoin the story when they close again. I settle in, feeling the effects of the tea starting even now. I look around at all the faces, beginning to see them as friendly, and I smile. The effect of tea and friendship starting to erase the hardship that I am about to recall. I don't know how long I've been out here since, but maybe... A week and a half or two, we were hired by the elder of 
of Azalea, Jaisha. He wanted the fruit, and I also wanted the fruit. I didn't even need the gold, and well, we were surrounded by wildflowers and ivy as we set out through this rich valley. We were happy and excited. Finally, we, we came upon the massive world wall. It was bigger than I could have imagined. It was, it was cold and it was dangerous. Uh, we lost Oha there. This huge bird decided. I, I don't know, he could have lifted a horse. It up and took him away. Within just looking away for a moment. It was all we could do to hang on and there was nothing we could do. The rest of the climb was, it was treacherous and cold. That's when I realized we might not have been as prepared as we thought. We could die. Finally, we reached the Everwood. The physics were off. Ogrim, Ogrim mentioned strange things that we saw beautiful but a very strange amalgamation of beast bioluminescent horns and wings and things that flew that shouldn't things that were there one moment and the next in a tree quite like him so many of them are so beautiful even now but so deadly another of my companions we were traveling and she bent to inspect this plant and all of a sudden these vines just encircled her they encircled us but some pod formed around her and, and it was the screams the screams by the time freed ourselves from our struggles. All we found was her perfect robe and her half-digested dead. It's what I use on my tent there to keep the water out. We had, we had seen strange things besides hearing the the giggling, the, the whispers of of the faithful, but but this thing, a, a female off in the distance, long white hair, and but any time we tried to draw close, any time we tried to run, any time we tried to as fast as we could, we could never, never reach her. Algrim disappeared after we watched that night. After that, just, just Ray, Kovkov, and I, well, we, we soldiered on, of course. Kovkov was, was my friend then. She was a, 
She was a giant raven, and I would... Uh, we would fly together. I, well, the three of us, she, Ray, and I, we looked for Ogrim the next day. Ogrim! I, I sent her into the trees to, to get a better look. Something struck at her. Nothing any of us could see. It was a translucent beast. It ate her whole. Yet he shot at it, but it became invisible. All we could see was her inside of it, and we had to shoot at her to hit it. Ray went after her, and he was able to kill it. He was poisoned. I knew, but I, I couldn't help. As we continued, Ray got worse, and I just eventually gave up and that's what happened before, before I ran into you. I look around the circle, tears still lingering in my eyes. Wait, you said Jaisha sent you? It's been six months. What? I... Six... six months? It is very, very unfortunately possible. I mean, what even is time? I can't stop staring at my own cloak. It's amazing. My armor's so sparkly. I've never seen such things. The party turns to look at Pebax, who is studying the back of his gauntlets. Varys grins and nods knowingly. Concerned, Sybil turns her attention back to Guy. You poor thing. You believe that you've only been out here for two weeks, but do you want us to help you home? What would you like to do? Jaisha was also the one that sent us out here. Home? I... Jaisha? Jaisha sent you too? Yes, it appears that upon your failure, or, or seeming failure... He, uh, enlisted our help. He sent you to save us? Not exactly. Um, he sent us to the Feywild to investigate the Chikora fruit and the source of the corruption. Must have just forgotten about us. I think he believes you were unsuccessful and therefore probably dead. He believes you, you perished, my dear. Jisha may not have sent us to rescue you, but it would appear that fate has. I smile at that. Our desires align. We should join up. You poor thing. You've been through such terror. Pebax realizes he is speaking to a nearby stump. Oh, you're over there. <laughs> I... Gee, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I... Wait, uh, is that me or is that me? I, 
I can't tell anymore. Sybil frowns at Peebak's unprofessionalism. Well, it appears that fortune has brought us together. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about your companions. It, it is a tragedy. A terrible tragedy, but, you know, we would love your help to complete this mission. And perhaps when it's all over, we could make sure you get home safely. Is that something you'd like? Yes. I, I don't want to be alone here. Well, then, of course, you'll travel with us. Of course you will. We will ensure your safe passage, my dear. I look around at the others situated around the campfire. Are you all in agreement? May I come with you? I'm sure we would be honored to have you join, especially if you would like to escape the Everwood. Thank you. Everyone can see that Guy is troubled and still in the middle of a living nightmare. A nightmare they have just stepped into. The woods, though now peaceful, have a foreboding presence, as if hidden threats watch from behind every tree, waiting for the right moment to strike. Sendra nimbly hops from branch to branch to climb to a new vantage point while everyone else prepares for bed. Elves require only four hours of sleep per night, and she welcomes the solitude. Though amicable through most of the trip, she must still exert willpower to fit in with the others, even more so in the Fey Realm, the polar opposite of the Shadowfell. You all get some sleep. I'll take first watch. Thank you, Sendra. I appreciate you keeping us all safe. I'm going to head to bed. Knowing that we're under the watchful eye of my new friend, Sendra, I allow my cradle of leaves to engulf me as I fall into it. I unroll my bed and I get underneath my blanket. Comforted by the thought of the company and the watch, I go into my tent and prepare to sleep. As I take my watch, staying at the highest position of the camp, I ready my crossbow just in case. The fire dims from neglect, but Sandra's vision isn't affected by the dying light. She welcomes the darkness and watches the nocturnal creatures and plant life cautiously reveal themselves and explore the forest. About four hours into my watch, I look around, look over my party, and make the decision to wake Ferris. I nudge him. Nudge him a little bit more. Wake up. It's your watch. I was having the most vivid dreams. Did you see anything? I think I heard the rock as everybody was settling in. Mm. The rock. Are you okay to take watch? Oh, absolutely. Sensing Sindra's skepticism, I kip up energetically to prove I am awake. See? I'm fit for watch. Then take my seat. It's the best vantage point. I will start there. Varys picks up his bow and quiver before gracefully moving up to the highest point in the camp. Below him, he sees Sendra climb into her bedroll. Just as he begins to slip into a meditative state, something moves in the distance, which catches his eye before disappearing behind a tree. He isn't sure. 
but he believes he saw something. Something humanoid with long, ground-length white hair. He orients himself to focus on the area where he sees the figure step between the trees before once again obscuring itself. He's sure he saw someone. Only this time, he was able to discern the raggedy dress upon its body. I remember them from the story Guy told. What was it that they did? Maybe they didn't do anything. Oh wait, now I remember. The mysterious being swiftly moves to another tree, looking directly at Varus the second before it vanishes from view. Seeing her disappear, I remember. The last time Guy saw that figure was when one of her friends disappeared. I dropped down carefully from my perch and slowly move closer to where the figure disappeared. Varys moves away from the camp and into the darkness, trying to stay quiet as possible. He comes to a dense patch of vegetation 20 feet away from the camp. I peer through the foliage. I feel a strange tingle on the back of my neck. Maybe it's a spider, a drop of dew, I'm not sure. But as I try to reach back to investigate, to feel what it is, my hand doesn't move. My arm doesn't move. Varys looks down to his arm. His hand is twitching with effort, but his arm will not raise, frozen in place. I struggle and struggle, struggle against the freezing feeling in my limb until finally I can feel the back of my neck. Nothing's there. The feeling is gone. My motion is returned. I shouldn't be out in the woods. I have to get back. What are you? My body freezes, but this time through my own will as I glance around to see what speaks Varys slowly cranes his neck to observe his surroundings, but the only creatures he sees are firefly-like insects, blinking and flitting from place to place. I glance around, but I see nothing. What are you? What are you? What are you? Currently a bit frightened, and I glance around still peering into the darkness to see what it is I'm conversing with. Varys is fairly certain he's discerned the direction of the small voice. He turns to a nearby tree and looks behind it, finding nothing. What are you? Varys looks down to his feet and sees a minuscule phosphorescent blue snail inching its way across an exposed root. He kneels next to it for a closer look. Its three extended eyes look up at him. I'd be happy to continue the conversation, but would you join me at the camp? I don't feel it's safe away from the fire. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I slowly begin stepping backwards, retreating back to the camp. As he steps back, he bumps up against something large and furry that wasn't there before. I jump forward, roll, and leap to my feet, facing the creature. Standing upright before Varys is a tall, furry creature. 
its strong arms ending in oversized claws. It stares at Varus with large yellow eyes. The beast points at Varus, falls backwards laughing, and instantly vanishes into the vegetation before Varus's eyes. I see your tricks now. I won't be fooled a second time. What are you? Tired of your tricks. Good night. I turn and begin walking confidently towards the camp. After climbing one of the protective logs circling the camp, Varus checks the site to make sure everything is as he left it. He then returns his watchful gaze to the woods. Upon returning to camp, I decide it may be wiser not to investigate any further strange noises or sights from the woods beyond. Varys sits cross-legged, waiting for dawn. I feel something clanging against my shoulder in the morning. Oh, oh, Varys. Good, good morrow to you. Um. And to you, Pebex. There's a commotion in the distance. It sounds... Where? Well, it's, it's that direction, and I point. Pebex awkwardly scrambles to his feet, extending his limbs to counterbalance the weight of the heavy armor as he rises. How far? Well, I'm not sure the exact distance. There's no immediate danger. But anything that can uproot a tree certainly poses a threat to us. Pebex pauses, still foggy from sleep. He is not sure he heard Varus correctly, but sees the concern in his eyes. He quickly turns, cape billowing behind him. Yes, let's wake the others. Ah, wait. Perhaps this is another trick. The surrounding trees quiver as a massive shadow passes overhead. Moments later, leaves gently fall upon the camp. <laughs> what the devil is that? My friend, and I put my arm around Pebex and draw him close. Yes? In the night, the creatures of the woods played tricks on me. I am uncertain if this is another. Oh, I see the same thing you do, Varys. Pebex cranes his neck, spotting an enormous shadow overhead. When it is nearly above the camp, the silhouette splits, leaving behind a massive, gently rotating object. To his horror, Pevax realizes they will soon be crushed by a rapidly approaching airborne old-growth tree. Oh dear. To arms! To arms! The rock returns! Game Mastering by Tony Galliano. Narrated by Ellis Reed. Sybil Silvertongue, played by Mackenzie Paulus. Sendra, played by Sarah Mullins. Pebax, played by Marcus Freeman. Varys Longfeather, played by John Polehammer. Gein, played by Torvald Tempestus. Martin Owen as Elder Jasha. Ellis Reed as The Halfling. Tony Campbell as The Jailer. Christopher Tommaso as The Blacksmith. Eric Prochna as the Jerky Vendor. Chloe Wyatt Taylor as the Vegetable Vendor. Torvald Tempestus as the Townswoman. 
Tony Galliano as Hee-Hoo-Hoo, Paul Greenleaf as Minuscule Blue Snail, and Ray, Sonic Realms Primer, read by Adam M. Thornton. Editing by Paul Greenleaf, Sarah Mullins, Izzy Aola, and Taylor Briggs. Sound design, original music, and production by Paul Greenleaf. Special thanks to Izzy Aola and Chris Rowan. Wizards of the Coast has sole ownership of the names, logo, artwork, marks, photographs, sounds, audio, video, and or any proprietary material used in connection with the game Dungeons & Dragons. Wizards of the Coast does not endorse and is not affiliated with Sonic Realms in any official capacity whatsoever. And hey, thanks for listening. I sidestep while drawing my... Drawing? Drawing? I sidestep while drawing my bow. I was worried I'd have to correct you. Be like, hey, I know you say drawing like drawing, but we normals say drawing. I don't say drawing. I say drawing. Drawing's what Southerners do. Yeah, they draw. I'm in Florida. This they got them dra- that draw. Okay. <clears throat> I sidestep while drawing. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> drawing. Drawing. Yeah. I'm making a draw here. While readying my bow. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Yes, Cinder's getting some tonight. <laughs> My mouth was full of water the moment you said that, and it was so hard not to do a literal spit take there. Oh, Go on. What? Confirmation. Are you asking me as you or asking me as the character? As Cindra. <laughs> She says in her least Syndra voice. Right. (laughs) Um, is Is that an entire sack of goat jerky? Yes, it is. Would you like some? (laughs) (laughs) And Tony died. (laughs) So enthusiastic about all. <laughs> I'm trying to sound um, pleasant. <laughs> you're sounding very, very <laughs> It's really scary. <laughs> Would you like some? Very uncomfortable. No, I would not like any. I wish I could describe Peabax's pupils. He's behind the helmet. (laughs) There's saucer (laughs) plates. You can't tell how fucked up I am, can you? (laughs) Are you saying that to a nearby stump? (laughs) Do you think they can tell? You just kind of like lean over. Can you tell how fucked up I am? I look to peabacks. I've led armies before. Uh, Whole armies. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> he hears that like in his head. This is his like narrator. Yeah, like, in it his echoes head. back. Hold on. Into his own skull. Gods, <laughs> I've I've led gods into battle. I'm so great. <laughs> There's just this one minor god of like puppies who's like, yeah, I fell that guy once. <laughs> oh, minor god puppies. of puppies. Minor god. <laughs> Aiming for its neck, my bolt flies through the air. It turns and looks and lets out one last scream before falling dead. I I initially thought you meant the bolt turns. Me too. Can you, say, I'm like, what? can you say can you say the rock turns? The bolt and, turns. Say, it's say, like say. I'm gonna kill this guy. <laughs> Bolt's like Bolt's like, bitch, I'm a pacifist. <laughs> Breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> Listeners, he's dead. <laughs> wow. Can I hear um P -back say it's hammer time? <laughs> <laughs> It's a now hammer time. <laughs> All right. It is now hammer. The time of the hammer is now. Is nigh. Well, I'd also like to get at least like a, uh, uh, you know, like yeah, yeah, like a like a noise of being catched. Caught? Yeah, catched. Yeah. Fucking kill me. Okay. Chris Tommaso as. The blacksmith. The blacksmith. Chris Tommaso as the blacksmith. The blacksmith. I have a gold P-Rex. It's a pleasure <laughs> to make your acquaintance. I, I, I picture you with one wide open eye. <laughs> Audrey, this is the first time you've heard their voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, so used yeah. to it. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> Hey, buddy. I stand in attention <laughs> for the majority of the night <laughs> until I fall asleep standing up with my companions around me. That checks out. Fucking Terminator! <laughs> I was thinking about, like, making the sound of an owl like sort of singing that oh yeah 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 that's perfect okay <laughs> 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 i really want to know you'll <laughs> figure it out add some kind of like animal effects to my voice there well i need more <laughs> you just give me no! give me give me yeah. a couple who's who <laughs> Good. Perfect. Perfect. Great. Do it. Are you? And then I. <laughs> I disadvantage athletics check. Please. Come on. What am I good at? What, the, what am I? <laughs> I just. I don't know if I have anything left to try to do. Most of my spells. <laughs> he, we, he's so badly right now. Wants to get to the top of that. Summon again, because all of his spells has to do with healing. He wants to heal the team. He wants to help, but he can't even fucking get to the battlefield at all. At all. The rock circles once, now aware of the intrudles. Intrudles, lovely. That sounds like a very nice pastry. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Wait, did, uh, did Peabacks drink it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did. Yeah. Oh, he How? did. 
What do so they see? Only Varys and Peebacks drank it? Yeah, how, did they, how do you drink it? Peebacks has his helmet on. What do you do, bro? Peebacks? <laughs> I produce a straw. Oh! <laughs> Is it on your character sheet? <laughs> I produce the straw out of my sleeve and sip <laughs> the tea. Next to the fire. It slides out <laughs> from in between Lutty. the helmet. <laughs> He's like, like, like a proboscis. Like, <laughs> like a proboscis. <laughs> <laughs> I want to react to that, maybe. maybe. Uh, I take all my beverages this way. Sound design, original production. Only bones are here. Peebacks is weird as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he's crying or shivering or all three, uh, everything either. Makes camp on that ledge. This is my life now. <laughs> At least. Uh, you can find me because my armor shines in the sun. <laughs> Marcus, buddy, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, this is my life. Oh, this shit. is awesome. <laughs> oh, I love it. Why can't do do we all just oh phone. So I am an owl now, and um, uh, a large and, one. I turn and look at my team, and I motion for them to climb on my back. I don't know who wants to do it first, but uh, I do wait it. a minute! The entire time I was scrambling up the side of that mountain, you could have turned into an owl and picked me up. Me, that's who! Me, you could have picked me up! You're cold. Cold. Right, right, right. Sorry. You're, You're cold and inspired. Also, also adrenaline, but also adrenaline. You know, the adrenaline. Yeah. You're cold and inspired and terrified. Oh, what? <laughs> and you're laughing, and you're terrified, and you're bored, and you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, get into it. Can't you get into it? 